Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Iron Shirt Barbecue Company. Iron Shirt Barbecue is a barbecue caterer that is family owned by Glenn and Kendra Stoltfus. Glenn is also a past guest of the podcast appearing on episode five of season one. Iron Shirt Barbecue Company is a barbecue caterer focused on serving fresh, handcrafted barbecue and sides from their home to your event. Glenn has been obsessed with cooking slow-smoked, mouth-watering, tender barbecue for 15 years. The focus is on freshness and every sticky rib, tender slice of brisket, and bite of juicy pulled pork is cut, pulled, or sliced fresh at your event. Every cut of meat is dry rubbed and smoked with wood and natural charcoal for hours. Sauce is on the side and only there to complement the meat, not overwhelm it. Kendra makes all the sides by hand from scratch using only the freshest available ingredients. Their mac and cheese is loaded with gouda and sharp cheddar. The baked beans are swimming in bacon and brown sugar, and the creamy slaw has a secret ingredient that will keep you up at night, wondering what could possibly bless the slaw with such amazing flavor. I have had the absolute pleasure of having barbecue prepared by Iron Shirt Barbecue. Hands down, it is the best barbecue I've ever eaten. Glenn has been perfecting his craft for years, and he has the skills, tools, and team to provide the best barbecue experience for your event. Book them right now for your wedding, family reunion, graduation, birthday party, or simple cookout. Their food will make you happy. Check out Iron Shirt Barbecue Company on Facebook and Instagram to see their menu, photos of their amazing food, and contact information for booking. You will not be disappointed. And if you mention that you heard about Iron Shirt Barbecue Company on the Diakonas, a Cops Calling podcast, you will get a 10% discount on your order. Iron Shirt Barbecue Company needs to be the caterer for your next event. Check out Iron Shirt Barbecue Company right now on Facebook and Instagram to learn more and get booking information. Then mention you heard about them on Diakonasa Cops Calling podcast and you will get a 10% discount on your order. Diakonas, a Cops Calling is supported by the Lancaster Patriot. The Lancaster Patriot is a conservative newspaper serving Lancaster County, Pennsylvania and beyond. If you are tired of liberal bias in your local newspaper, then you need to switch to the Lancaster Patriot right now. The Lancaster Patriot is not ashamed to stand on biblical truth and defend traditional values. Their newspaper includes local stories from Lancaster County, local sports, state, national, and international stories. They even have faith and perspective sections that apply the scripture to our culture. This is not a newspaper that will win any liberal or woke awards but it will bring you the news free from corporate agendas and government talking points. Subscribe to the Lancaster Patriot today and get a real print newspaper delivered right to your door every single week. I am a proud subscriber of the Lancaster Patriot, and you can join me. As a fan of Diakonasa Cops Calling, you can get a discounted subscription right now. Use promo code Diakonas, that's D-I-A-K-O-N-O-S, and receive $15 off your first year's subscription. Sign up online at thelancasterpatriot.com or call 717-370-7508. Again, enter code Diakonos and save $15 on your first year subscription to local, honest, and conservative news. Visit www.thelancasterpatriot.com for more information or call them at 717-370-7508. Diakonas, a cop's calling, is a proud affiliate of Audible. Right now, you can go to audibletrial.com slash diakonasacc to get a free 30-day trial. I personally have an Audible membership and absolutely love it. Audible is my go-to way to take in a book. As a family, you also use Audible on long trips to listen to books with the kids, and I personally use it when I'm driving, doing yard work, or have some downtime. 
Currently, I'm reading Fault Lines by Vody Bauckham Jr., and I just downloaded into my listening library 12 Seconds in the Dark by John Mattingly, the sergeant who was shot during the Breonna Taylor raid. Audible offers thousands of audiobooks, podcasts, including this one, plus much more. As an affiliate, Diakonasa Cops Calling gets a commission for each newly generated trial through the link provided. You can get a free 30-day trial right now. Just go to audibletrial.com slash diakonasacc. This link will also be included in this podcast episode description and can also be found on the podcast website at diakonasacc.com. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We need a stronger warning for this episode. This episode definitely has bad words. What does it have? Bad words. And what else does it have? And content that is not for little ears. I said, how is it that I donated my antibody, I donated my plasma for it to be used to give somebody monoclonal antibodies treatment to, to treat someone that has COVID-19 and they're given a 90 day exemption. So my blood is good enough to heal them for 90 days, but it's not good enough to heal me while I have, while I have these antibodies in me. My grandmother lived in Sunset, Brooklyn. Um, it was crack infested neighborhood. Um, it looked like a, a movie, like what you would see on movies. You know, people with fire barrels in the street, prostitutes everywhere. We would walk on crack files to get to, to go see my grandmother. And I probably get about eight blocks away from the command when I start hearing 1013, 1013 address of the precinct. So in my head, in my head, in my head, I'm like, yeah, they're shooting up the priest. This is Diakonasa Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. Listen, I have a awesome episode for you. Uh, recently, I had the pleasure of having a conversation with retired NYPD Lieutenant John McCary, uh, and I talked to him about his career and how the COVID mandates in New York drove him to early retirement. You definitely, definitely want to hear that, and you will in just a few minutes. Hey, every once in a while, um, I like to kind of go back and, and talk to those of you who don't listen to Diakonasa Cops Calling on a regular basis, or maybe this is the first time you've ever listened to the podcast, and just let you know that this podcast exists to promote law enforcement with biblical truth and help people better understand the uh, calling of a police officer. So what can you expect on this podcast? First and foremost, unapologetic in the proclamation of the gospel. I'm a Christian, and the Bible and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ are talked about on this podcast. Um, the other thing you can expect is real uh, raw interviews with police officers with, where they tell their stories in their own words. Uh, we also push back against the anti-police narrative uh, in this country right now. Uh, and we talk about current law enforcement events and bring context to them from trained and experienced uh, law enforcement officers and, and their, uh, what they've experienced in their careers and their, their training that they have. So every single week, 
People support this podcast by listening, and I so appreciate that. I'm very grateful to the fans of the show. But if you are a fan, please consider doing something else for me. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please give the podcast your honest five-star rating and consider writing a review. I don't care if it's one word. Uh, It helps get the podcast seen and heard by more people. Uh, There are many ways you can support me and the podcast. You can go to www.diakonosacc.com to check out that website uh, and learn more about me and this podcast and, and also see the five ways you can support me and the mission of Diakonos at Cops Calling. I will put that website link in uh, the comments for this episode. If you are new to the podcast, one of the reasons you should support this podcast is because it strives to highlight the amazing work of officers on every single episode. Diakonos is Greek, for servant. It's found in Romans 13, 1 through 5. The word diakonos is a compound word made up of two different words, one of which means to raise up dust in pursuit or uh, to hurry after. And every day, officers are kicking up dust in pursuit of lawbreakers. Cue the dip means just that, kicking up the dust in pursuit. And this episode's Cue the Dip winner comes to us from the St. Lucie Sheriff's Office in Florida. Sheriff Deputy Cody Colangelo kicked up the dust in literal pursuit after he was stabbed in the neck. Here's what happened. At 11 p.m. on the 23rd of March, 2022, Deputy Colangelo was investigating a vehicle accident where the driver fled the scene. He came across the female suspect on a shoreline area near the accident, and as he interacted with her and was following her up a stairway and away from the water, she suddenly produced a knife and stabbed him in the neck, nicking his uh, carotid artery. After doing so, she fled on foot. Deputy Colangelo applied pressure to the wound, did not go down, and instead attempted to use deadly force and then pursued the suspect. He also radioed for help and directed other deputies to uh, the suspect's location where she was arrested. She is now charged with attempted murder. Uh, Listen to this news report from NBC Channel uh, 5WP-TV that also uh, contains body cam footage from the interaction and attempted murder of Deputy Colangelo. Tonight, for the first time, we're seeing the dramatic body camera video showing the moments before a St. Lucie County Sheriff's deputy is stabbed in the neck after responding to a crash. WPTV's Ryan Hughes walks us through the video and is more from the deputy's doctor on his recovery. What's going on? Man, stop real quick. Newly released body camera video reveals the first moment St. Lucie County Sheriff's deputy, Cody Colangelo. Were you just in a crash? Ma'am, come up here. Don't walk away. Came into contact with Leah Day down an embankment near the water after investigators say she crashed her car on South Indian River Drive late Wednesday night. Walk upstairs, all right? Let's get out this water area. The 21-year-old suspect is crying and says she's scared. Then, seconds later, the sheriff's office says she pulls out a knife and stabs the deputy in the neck, nicking his carotid artery. (laughs) A major vessel. Usually, uh, people don't do well with that injury. But Deputy Colangelo is being praised for using his training to save his life, applying pressure to his neck while chasing after the suspect and calling for backup. Of all the things, that's probably the thing that uh, was the most important maneuver 
uh, before he got here. The 22-year-old deputy was rushed to HCA Florida Lawnwood Hospital where Dr. Christopher Bennett performed an hours-long surgery using a vein in the deputy's leg to help repair the wound in his neck. So he took a piece of that uh, and uh, used that as a patch and oversewed the hole that was made from the knife. Investigators believe Leia Day may have been under the influence. She faced the judge Friday and is now facing attempted murder charges. Dr. Bennett says Deputy Colangelo is lucky, and had he been stabbed two to three inches lower, the outcome could have been much different. If, it, if the knife had a downward trajectory, very, very different story. He probably wouldn't have made it to the hospital. Deputy Colangelo was discharged from the hospital Friday morning. He's now resting and recovering at home. He has an incision on his neck, but the doctor says he should be fully healed in just a few weeks. In Fort Pierce, Ryan Hughes, WPTV, News Channel 5. While I was not able to find the full unedited body cam of this incident, I watched what was made available, and I also watched the entire news conference from Sheriff Ken Mascara and Chief Deputy Brian Hester regarding this incident. I have several thoughts and considerations I'd like to uh, talk about. Officers are never on a routine call. This was a traffic accident, something that officers go to over and over again. Through training and experience, officers can never let their guard down. I've heard people complain about this or question this, wondering if it is helpful or if it creates on-edge officers. The problem is officers can't afford to treat anything as routine or put their guard down. Because if you don't prepare for it, if you don't train for it, if you don't mentally prepare and rehearse for it, and if you don't believe that it will happen to you, you won't be able to perform in that moment. I can speak from personal experience to this. Those high stress incidents I trained for and I prepared for, I performed much better than those I had not. Your mind will not be able to process what is happening and determine what needs done if you don't prepare for it. And that could be the difference between life and death. Suspects always have the drop. They know what they are going to do and officers are reacting. Anything that officers can do to close the amount of time it takes to react or put themselves in an advantageous position will help them when the brown stuff hits the fan. And in this case, everything feels normal or routine. A traffic accident where someone fled the scene, this is not a high stress call for officers. On the body cam, when Deputy Colangelo makes contact with the office, with the suspect, she is wearing a tight sports bra and short, tight shorts. Looking at the video available, it is impossible to tell from where she produces the knife. Looking at how she is dressed, most would think that there would be no chance at all that she has a weapon hidden on her. Again, an officer does not have the luxury of assuming anything. Had a citizen saw an officer patting down the suspect for weapons, they would have found it ridiculous and in our day and age probably would have let the whole world know about it filming it and saying that the officer was out of line but again the officer can't assume he has to look intently for any sign of a weapon do the pat down for weapons if it's warranted hands 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 always looking at those hands uh, and the hands of anyone they are dealing with checking waistbands moving into better positions to respond should the person want to fight or produce a weapon Every time I am dealing with anyone, I am making very specific decisions and thinking critically about every move I'm making, what I'm asking, what I'm directing, how the person is responding and how they they are moving. Where's my closest cover? And for people who don't have any training and who have no experience of being in a fight with an unknown person with unknown abilities and unknown weapons, 
they literally have no idea what they're talking about when they see a 30 second video and decide if they believe the officer did the right thing. During the press conference, the level of training was really highlighted and how it helped Deputy Colangelo to survive and win. A couple things that stuck out to me was that he did not panic. He knew he was gravely injured, but he did not give up. He became his own medic and applied pressure to his own neck. He remained calm and controlled in his breathing. In high stress, it is paramount to control your breathing. Sometimes called tactical breathing, it is the ability to breathe in deeply, hold it, and exhale completely, getting oxygen to your brain so that you can think, not panic, and communicate so people can understand you. Unbelievably hard to do under stress, especially life and death stress, and it takes practice and discipline. Because Deputy Coelangelo did these things, he saved his own life, used deadly force, pursued the suspect, and communicated effectively, which caused the suspect to be taken into custody. He is this episode's Cue the Dip winner, and I am thankful he is currently on the mend and will be able to return to work. Okay, it's time for the absolute great conversation I had with my guest for this episode, and we're going to jump into that right now. My guest for this episode is retired NYPD Lieutenant John McCarry. John had a dedicated career of nearly 18 years with the NYPD. Throughout his career, he served on patrol and in specialty units such as Operation Impact, Anti-Crime, and Field Intelligence. Hired in 2004, he rose to the ranks, getting promoted to sergeant in 2012 and then to lieutenant in 2020. In his supervisory role, he served in a patrol function, anti-crime, internal affairs, and finished his career overseeing the NYPD's 200-plus facilities that operate 24-7, 365 days a year. In February of this year, John made an incredibly difficult decision to retire from the NYPD after New York City mandated that all police officers get vaccinated against COVID, and he was denied a a religious exemption. He's appeared on Fox News. Uh, He's launching his own podcast and has been working extremely hard to bring light to the evilness of these mandates and their negative impact on officers and their families. Currently, he lives in Florida, uh, where he's joining me from, and he runs a small business. John McCarry, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Hey, Anthony, thank you for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you giving a voice to this issue. Um, You know, I do feel that although the media does report, there hasn't been, you know, it just gets brushed over so quick and the impact that it's having on thousands. You know, for me, it is it is a law enforcement, but it's just thousands in the city of New York. And, you know, even currently 5000 more New York City police officers are going to face the same decision that I already faced. Um, wow. And, and do you know when those 5,000, like when the deadline is for these next 5,000? So what's going on is people would have already submitted religi- religious exemptions. Some have been approved. Uh, around 30% have been approved and uh, 70% were denied. Um, uh, out of those 70% that were denied, uh, you had the ability, you had the option to appeal the, the city's decision to say, okay, you know, I don't believe that your decision was correct. You know, I'm, I'm requesting a religious exemption. And now what currently is going on is, is about every 10 days, 200 officers are getting their response for their appeal. And again, very discriminatorily, some people are being approved, some people and most are being denied. Um, and do you- 
do you know why like do you know why the city is approving some religious exemptions and not others like is there a common theme to the ones they're approving and the ones they're denying do you know I, I, you know, I, I don't want to speculate on it, um, why that is. I am going to wait till the process is done and foil it to get the answer that I believe is going on. Um, I believe if you look through rank, if you look at rank structure, if you look at those who are close to the mayor, those who have political ties, those are people that are getting approved. I wouldn't say that they, they're more religious. I know uh, an ordained minister who runs his own church, who was denied a religious exemption. Uh, he's, a, he's a detective in the NYPD with 28 years on. So, you know, I, I mean, if you're going to pick and choose who's religious and who's not, I would uh, assume that he would get to go. Um, and he did it, you know. So it's, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you want me to go into the OEO law, but, but basically in New York State, New York State Human Rights Act, uh, Civil Rights Act 1964, federal city and state OEO law say that an employer is required, is required by law to, uh, to accept a reasonable accommodation. Uh, there's a few instances where they could deny it. And basically how they could deny it is say that you're an undue hardship. So the city's job isn't to approve whether or not you believe in God, whether or not how religious you are. Their job is basically to say whether or not letting you stay employed would cause the city of New York an undue hardship. Um, so I don't know how in any way, shape or form you could reasonably say that one person is going to cause you an undue hardship um, by approving their religious exemption or even their medical exemption. And then at the same time, turn around and say, well, this guy won't, this guy's going to cause the city an undue hardship. Right. So, you know, so basically they're violating the law on that. And, um, if they would have set the mandate out a little differently, if they would have said everybody, um, maybe they had a leg to stand on at that point, but they didn't do that. Um, so they're in complete violation in the law. I don't know how New York City or the New York City Police Department or any agency that falls under that umbrella at this point could reasonably claim to be a OEO employer. Uh, they're not. Right. Now, when you say uh, put the mandate out to everyone, what do you mean by that? You're, you're saying they, the mandate was different for different employees of the city? Or, or what did you mean by that? No, I'm sorry. Let me clarify. If if they would have uh, if they would have denied everybody, gotcha. If they would have denied everybody a religious exemption, you know, then at least you could see that. All right, we we feel that it's it's truly unsafe for some of you to continue working. You know, um, but so we're not gonna we're not gonna approve anybody. But they didn't do that. You know, like I said, thirty percent were approved originally. And now again, people are getting approvals, and you know, I you know, I, I would be more than happy to send my my uh, my religious exemption over to you to read it. I I you know, and I even said it on my appeal to the city. I said I, I don't believe that anybody's you're going to find was was more or less heartfelt than mine. You know, I was sitting at my desk typing up my not only my request for re religious accommodation but my appeal. And I'm, you know, I'm an emotional wreck. I'm crying. It takes me four or five hours of my day on my own time. I'm like, I put my heart and soul into it. And, you know, to get my original, uh, my original request was denied. It just said, dear applicant, uh, after careful consideration, your uh, request has been uh, denied. Um, and then, you know, and then again, I appeal. 
I, I uh, filed a complaint with a New York State Division of Human Rights about it. I said that I was illegally denied a religious exemption. I wasn't interviewed. You know, uh, I don't know why my mine was denied and others were approved. And I then got a second denial back after I was already retired with checkboxes on it. And one of the reasons the city of New York stated that they wouldn't accept my religious accommodation is that it was rooted in vaccine misinformation. Um, you know, I know no one here read my religious ex- my request for religious exemption, but there was nothing on there about the vaccine. I never made mention to it. I didn't say anything about that it had aborted fetal cells. I didn't say anything other than, you know, that I that I contracted COVID early on. I believe in God's healing powers. I believe my body's a temple. I believe that the antibodies that flow through my system that I currently still have, by the way, I believe that those were given to me through God. And I don't take medicine. I don't take aspirin when I'm not sick. I don't take aspirin when I don't have a headache. I don't take medicine for no reason. I'm not a pro-vaccine guy and I'm not an anti-vaccine guy. I've, the only vaccine I've taken when I was, was when I was a kid as a child. And, you know, I, I wasn't really conscious for that. My mother took me to the doctor, you know? Um, right. So I didn't feel a reasoning. I, I did speak to the NYPD doctors after my, after uh, I did uh, contract COVID. And originally I contracted COVID prior to vaccines being readily available. They had just got released when I, uh, when I got it and they weren't even available yet. Um, so I contracted COVID. I, spe- I spoke to the NYPD the, the doctors at that time and they told me, hey, listen, you know, and I was in bad shape, man. I had pneumonia. I was uh, laid up for 10 days. Uh, treatment treatment in New York City was absolutely horrific. Um, I couldn't breathe. I kept calling doctors. Nobody would see me. And I was telling them I have pneumonia. Uh, basically, no one, everyone's like, oh, it's just a symptom of COVID. If it gets worse, go to the hospital. So it, it basically, it gets to the point where I can't even stand up and get myself to the bathroom without going into a crazy coughing fit, not being able to breathe. I couldn't even get up to pee. I, uh, I mustered enough strength to get myself to the hospital. I got myself to the hospital. They took x-rays. Um, they told me I was fine. I asked at that point for a pack and something to calm the cough. Uh, the doctor that I was dealing with at the time told me I don't have pneumonia. Everything's fine. Um, it's just a symptom of COVID. I'm just overreacting. Um, it took me about three hours to walk out of the hospital that day to get myself back to my car that, was, uh, that I parked totally illegally on a sidewalk because I just couldn't breathe. I uh, got myself home that night with coughing fit. It took me about five hours. I lived around the block from the hospital wow. and uh, I called Teladoc and on the phone with Teladoc, the, the doctor said to me, you need to go to the hospital. You're really bad. You know, it's a video conference. I was like, listen, I just got released from the hospital. I just want a pack. I just need something to go with this cough. I said, I'm going to die. I'm telling you, I can't breathe. I could barely walk. I was, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not an overweight guy. Uh, you know, I boxed, uh, I, I, I boxed in Madison Square Garden. Um, you know, the day before I contracted COVID, I was doing wind sprints in my yard and, you know, deadlifting. And, and I, you know, I was, I'm constantly doing something, playing football, playing baseball. Up until that point now, I can't even walk to the bathroom. Right. Um, so the doctor took mercy on me, prescribed me. Um, a Z pack and some pills to to for the cough. I, uh, I I my wife gets me the Z pack as soon as she can. She gets it to me. I take it, and about six hours later, I felt life rush back into my body. 
I couldn't walk for about a month after that. I couldn't carry the groceries in. I couldn't do anything. I have scarring on my lungs, spotting on my lungs from it. Um, but with all of that, I have a very high level of antibodies. Right. And I still currently have them. This happened in March of 21. I mm -hmm. still currently have, if you, if you look at, if I, if I show you my antibody test till today, um, it's, it's off the chart, you know, like it, like on one side of the chart on the far left, it'll be, you have no antibodies in the middle of the chart. It's you're positive. I'm all the way to the far right of the chart. Um, so, right. so, and basically that's what I said. I said, you know, I believe that God, that God gave me these antibodies. I, I, I spoke the doctors at that time when I was healing told me, you know, if you're planning on taking this vaccine, I recommend against taking it. I, I, I don't, we don't recommend you ever taking a vaccine after a recent infection. And to me, you know, it made very good sense to me. Uh, like sure. I said, you know, like I said, we all had chicken pox when we were kids. Like, you know, we're all about the same age and, you know, my mother didn't rush me out to get the chicken pox vaccine after that. You know, that was it. I was immune, you know? Um, so I, I, I reached into that. I also wrote, you know, two scriptures in the Bible where Jesus says two times, that basically, you know, the sick are in need of a doctor and and those who are not do not. Now, you know, there's multiple ways to interpret a Bible passage. And I interpret Bible passages multiple ways. Um, you know, they everything means different to all of us. You know, the Bible speaks completely different to me than it does. We you know, we could talk about the story of King David and my version of it's going to be completely different than your version of it. Um, so I, I pointed to those and I said, basically, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with OEO law. I'm familiar that my belief does not have to be a tenant of my religion. It does not. I do not even have to be belong to an organized religion. However, I am a Roman Catholic and I believe that this is a tenant of my religion because it's clearly written right here in the Bible. And, you know, Bible scholars could debate over that passage, but it says it right there. The sick are in need of a doctor and those who are not sick do not. And to me, that's telling me I don't need to take medicine when I'm not sick. Um, right. I, I also go on to the fact, I also go further on to state how I believe in the truth. I believe in upholding the truth. I believe the truth is the way in the light. And I believe not only that I, I do I believe it, but it, it has been stated. Um, it has been stated that anything done in violation of conscience is damnation. So for you asking me to violate what I know to be true, you're asking me to violate my conscience. You're asking me to violate everything I know to be true to take this vaccine. And while you're asking me that, you're throwing incentives at me is what they would call. $500 will give you. We'll give you this. We'll give you that. You know, if you don't do this, you're going to be fired. You know, I'm, I'm at work every day and, you know, on the news they're calling us criminals. My, my whole upper brass is sending emails to us every day, multiple 15, 16 emails a day, like the most nonsensical things you ever read in your life. Like, um, it would be, it was like, it was vaccine misinformation versus vaccine fact. We would get an email every day. One of those emails. And I kid you not was vaccine misinformation. The vaccine is unsafe. The fact fact is the vaccine is safe. No follow-up, no data to support any of that. That was right. fact versus myth. And I'm like, what, what world am I living in? What right. is going on? Um, did, you, did you feel like there was anyone in high levels of leadership in the NYPD that was fighting 
for those of you who were, you know, and, 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 and obviously at that point you were a lieutenant, so I'm not sure how many ranks you have above lieutenant and NYPD, but did you feel like anyone in those higher ranks was fighting for you and, and the people below you, or was it just full court press mandates? You have to get vaccinated. So, you know, I, it was, you know, again, I could go into like the steps of my career, but I, you got to understand at this time we're eight years into Bill de Blasio, um, you know, some of the people that I looked up to in leadership that, uh, you know, I modeled my career off some of the things that they told me that I that I carried with me my whole career. Those men turned around and demonized 30 years of, of their career. And they basically it was a full court press. Whatever Bill de Blasio said was going there was some lower ranking non-appointed chiefs that were a little vocal, not much, not much. They disappeared very quickly and they disappeared very quickly directly after the religious exemptions came down and they're still working today. So okay. again, I don't want to make any claims about that, but you know, it, it's it was it was a full court press, you know, and it was such a full court press that, it, you know, it, it changed everybody. You know, you, you got to think like that, like by the time that that actually came down, we had already been through the worst of the pandemic. We had already right. been through the riots. We had already lost a lot of guys and a lot of people in the city. And we didn't know at that time. I mean, I, I knew at that time. I don't you know, I don't know that it was public information that. You know, it was lack of treatment that was killing everybody in New York City. They weren't they weren't uh, handing out medicine. Um, I know people that went to the emergency room and got shoved on a ventilator because they said they couldn't breathe. What you know, like what what right. what you know, and and they're dead. They're not alive today because of because of that. Um, you know, and so yeah, there was really no one. I mean, my union. I, I you know I, I I was very vocal at the Lieutenants Benevolent Association. You know, because we're broken up by rank. Our unions because there's okay. so many of us. Okay. There's about three thousand lieutenants. There's about eight thousand sergeants. You know, there's about thirty thousand cops. You know, the captain's unit. In, the captain's union is about you know like maybe a thousand guys, and that encompasses captains, uh, deputy inspectors, inspectors, and every rank of chief. Um. So, you know, we're broken up into unions and, and basically, you know, I was real early on all of this. I, I started speaking out of, against it the minute they started to say that only the unvaccinated need to wear a mask and need to test every day to go to work. So I started speaking out about it about three, like four months before the actual mandate came down to be vaccinated. And my union did not care. They just would not even they like. They made like I didn't exist. I was like a pariah and I was calling. I was speaking with everyone. I'm like, this is wrong, man. This is like so I was like, I don't understand what's I don't understand. Like if you change that word out unvaccinated and you put anything in there, the, you know, the, the, the black guys have to wear a mask and test. The gay guy has to wear a mask and test. The Jewish guy has to wear a mask and test. It's right. it's horrific. So how is it not the other way? And. You know, not to ramble, but my last point on it is that during that whole summer, you know, I had already had it and I had already recovered. And now, you know, about 60 percent of the police department at this point was vaccinated and all the guys that had to wear a mask and all the guys that were testing never tested positive. And all the guys that had the vaccine were coming in 
you know, walking around free. And, and again, my thing wasn't, and you know, I know the law. So our, my whole complaint was I have no problem taking a test and I have no problem wearing a mask, but why doesn't he, if it, this is about safety, then what are you telling me that my safety is of no concern? We're telling these people we're of no concern. And, and I'm a supervisor, man. So like, I have to kind of lay down the law at that time. I'm the integrity control officer for the facilities and management division. And my job's basically to make sure everyone's up on the up and up and that all police policies being, and, you know, all department policy, police policy, the law is being followed by about 700 guys. So I'm the guy that's responsible to make sure that everybody's testing and putting their test in there. And even at that point, I'm like, I could see that maybe I have access to know who's vaccinated or not. Maybe, maybe you can make that argument because I'm their supervisor, but everyone sees it across the whole department. And why is it okay for me to just see your medical, your private medical information about one thing only? How come I don't know if you have AIDS then? How come I don't know if you have cancer? How come I don't know a million other things? What medications you're on? How come I don't know anything else? How come we don't know all that stuff? Right. Um, so, you know, it was kind of weighing on me so that, you know, I don't want to ramble too much. on that. So, but no, I, I mean, I can, I can hear just the, you know, the anguish of the decisions you had to make, um, you know, through 2020 and, and into the, or through 2021 and into the beginning of 2022. Um, and I think, I think, you know, when I hear you talk both now and, and offline, uh, you know, we've had a conversation and some back and forths, uh, be email and, and such. Um, I think the thing that strikes me and the thing that you also brought up is first you have, you have police officers. Um, and, and for that matter, you can even go into the medical field and nurses and doctors who were working through the pandemic and assuming a level of risk. And then, um, and they were called heroes and they were, you know, lifted up and, and praised. And then when the vaccine came down, there was this idea that no longer did they have the ability to make those decisions. You, you allowed, they, they assumed so much risk. And, and in the case of police officers, they assume a level of risk every single day. And now you're telling these police officers, hey, every day we ask you to go out and do a job. Every day we ask you to possibly put your uh, life on the, li- on the line. Every day we ask you to possibly bleed on the behalf of citizens but we are not going to let you assume this risk that you are mandated to do this. I think that's a level of concern for me. And then I think when, when you're talking about it and hearing you talk about the fact that you're not anti-vaccine, that you actually contracted COVID and had it very badly. Um, so it's not that you didn't take it seriously um, or didn't think it existed or was some sort of you know crazy right-wing loon that didn't believe COVID existed. You experienced it and you're not anti-vaccine. There are so many people like that, and yet they're being forced to put something in their body that is is causing them pause. They don't want to. Um, and and I think, you know, it's one thing to see news stories about it. It's one thing to talk about it. I think it's another thing to have you here talking about it and how it affected you and the amount of pressure that was on you as a boss and as an employee of the NYPD to make those decisions. I mean, it, it's, I mean, personally, I think it's, it's evil. Uh, I, I think it's wrong. Yeah. It's, I, I, 
and just another point, like just another point about how the onslaught was. There was a constant onslaught of emails, like I said, and there was actually like a help desk set up, COVID-19 questions. So at the time, they would give you, you either had to have a religious exemption in, but they were giving, it's for you to continue working, but they were giving exemptions from having to take the vaccine 90 day, and then you wouldn't have to test or you wouldn't have to wear a mask or or follow the mandate for 90 days if you received monoclonal antibody treatments. Okay? Now monoclonal antibody treatments are 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 stem from the blood of people who have natural forming antibodies, not people that took the vaccine. If you took the vaccine, you're not eligible to donate your plasma for monoclonal antibodies. So at that time, if you received the monoclonal antibodies, you would get a 90-day exemption. So my argument was I sent over to the, what I believed to be the medical division at that time. Um, you know, the NYPD, for those who don't know, I mean, I'm sure you guys know, it's a massive enterprise, right? We have every unit that you could think of. You know, even for uh, mental health, we have a mental health unit, which is laughable, but, um, you know, but they even have that. Like, so they have their own medical division. We have our own nurses, our own doctors. Uh, you know, they're called uh, district surgeons. They assimilate, they have the assimilated rank of a, of a, of a full bird inspector. Um, some even have chief, chief uh, assimilated rank. Um, so I sent, I sent a question to them. I said, hey, listen, here are my antibody tests that I just took. And I took it from like the week prior to me sending the email. I said, how is it that I donated my antibody? I, don I donated my plasma for it to be used to give somebody monoclonal antibodies treatment to, to treat someone that has COVID-19 and they're given a 90 day exemption. So my blood is good enough to heal them for 90 days, but it's not good enough to heal me while I have, while I have these antibodies in me. And, and part of my request Besides my religious request was I said to allow me to continue. I said, please allow me to continue working. I will I will test not only myself for COVID-19 and continue to wear a mask, but I will do it all at my own time and all at my own expense. And I will continue to monitor my antibodies because then you could actually give me an argument like, hey, you've got no protection in you. There's no antibody inside of you um, because the only thing I was being told from the medical division was you need to take the vaccine because your antibodies are going to run out. That was the only thing they could tell me. And I was like, well, they haven't, though. So, I mean, I don't I have no problem. Like, can't I just test and wait? Because right. I still because I'm still having residual effects from having COVID. I still right. have scarring on my lungs. I'm still not the same guy I was. I'm much better than I was. I could carry the groceries. I could go for a like a very light jog sometimes, depending on the climate. I can't do it on a human day. I can't do it in an extremely cold day. I can't do it if there's smoke in the air or I'm very sensitive to smoking. Uh, like anybody with cigarettes, I could smell it from a mile away now or never had any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but basically, the the so the medical division responded back to my email and what they said to me was, you have by uh, October 29th, uh, you need to be vaccinated or have a religious exemption in or you will be terminated. You know, and I was like, OK. And it came from it didn't come from someone in the medical division. It came from like a civilian in the strategic um, whatever they were called, the uh, strategic division or whatever it okay. is. 
uh, and and basically it was an all civilian office that the the mayor de Blasio had put in to basically set down law for the police department, set down procedure and policy. You know, they were they were not they weren't you know there was a few cops in there, but not many. You know, right. So right. I so then I just said, hey, please do me a favor. Don't share my personal medical information with anyone. I thought I was I thought I was asking a question to the medical division. And that right. was my that was the response that I would get from COVID-19 questions. You know, and, 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 and that's just I mean, that's insanity to me because it, it literally makes no sense. Like what you just laid out there, um, you know, I think, you know, even if someone and I, I believe you would agree with me, even if someone didn't have COVID and didn't want to get the vaccine and, and put through a religious exemption, should have the right to, to make that decision for their body. But you literally have the antibodies and you are going above and beyond about what you're willing to do. And there's still no movement. It's, it's, it's just a, a push to force you to do uh, what they want you to do. I, I, it's just unbelievable to me. Um, but. Wow. Um, I did want to read a quote. You, you had a quote. I, uh, I located a, uh, article that was published by the Brownstone, uh, Institute, uh, and it was article about COVID and the mandates and stuff. And you had a quote in there and I just want to read that, uh, real quick and then, uh, ask you to expound on that or, or just, uh, tell me what that brings back for you. Um, you said, quote, there were many of my colleagues who took this vaccine and they did not want to take this vaccine. They took it to keep their employment to put food on the table. And I would never judge anyone for doing that, but it was horrible the way they were being pushed into it. I'm seeing hundreds of guys lining up day in and day out. As the days got closer, it was more and more. It went from 40% vaccinated to 60% vaccinated, 75% vaccinated, and people were feeling the pressure and the unions weren't there for them. They felt they had nowhere to go. And I felt the same way, which is why I started to look for different career options I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this in my 18th year, looking for different career options. I'm down there at work. I'm watching grown men with tears in their eyes sit down, take a shot that they didn't want to take, stand up enraged, and immediately storm out of there saying, I had no choice. I had no choice. Just reading that, um, I will tell you that gives me goosebumps to hear the level of just desperation. like. The, the, this wasn't the, these, um, officers were being forced to make a decision between doing something against their will, putting something into their body against their will or losing their job and possibly the ability to provide for their families. Um, can you just like, when you hear that quote, what does that do for you or what, where does that take you in your mind when you hear that quote? I'm, it, it takes me right back to where I was, even at the onset of it, even at the onset of the masking and the testing, you know, it was just wrong, man. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I, sorry, it's just, you know, they, like the whole way that it went was just, it was just so discriminatory. You know, I grew up in a city that was, the most diverse environment in the world. It truly is like the police department is the most diverse department in the world. Um, you know, my friends look like the United Nations and there's probably, I probably have friends that don't, their, their country isn't even on the board of the United Nations, you know? Um, <laughs> and it, it's true. I'm, you know, right. and it's, right. and, and, you know, like, and 
I, you know, I read Anne Frank as a kid and like things like that stuck with me. And I read a lot of Martin Luther King and I read Frederick Douglass and all of these things that I've read is that we're all equal, right? We're all equal, but here I am. I have to go get tested because I'm dirty, even though I'm completely, there's nothing wrong. I don't feel sick. I feel, I feel completely healthy. I have the antibodies in me. I know guys that took this vaccine have zero antibodies in them, in them. None, mm-hmm. none, none whatsoever. And, and now I'm, I know people that have had COVID three or four times and they're double or triple boot and they're, or they're double or triple vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And here I am, I'm not getting it. I'm watching everyone get it around me and I'm getting forced to get tested. And there was at one point I walked down um, to go to the testing site in one police plaza. They would do it in the in the press room for those of you who have a watched a press conference of the police commissioner speaking. There's a little press room. It almost simulates an auditorium, but it's a it's a pretty significant sized room. You walk in there, there's the podium there, and that's where they speak at. But they would have all these people there in um in like I don't even know, like we were aliens, like suited up with, uh, with masks on their face and like you know ch- uh, you know a face shield and like you know full Tyvek suit and gloves, like almost, like some of them probably even had tape around, like it was ridiculous. And then I would have to sit there and get tested, and the guys that weren't vaccinated, and listen, you know what cops, right? Like. And I got a great sense of humor, dude. You can you can mess with me all day. I'll laugh at you. I don't care. But like I'm walking down to go get tested and there's a lieutenant, a sergeant and a cop. And I'm not going to say their names, but they staring at me. And one of them says something and I didn't hear what he said, but they all start laughing. So I immediately lose my mind. I immediately I go right over the lieutenant. I'm like, where are the drinking fountains for the unvaccinated? He's like, excuse me. I'm like, you heard me. Where are the drinking fountains for the unvaccinated? I don't want to. I don't want to dirty up your drinking fountain. I want to make sure because I didn't go get tested yet. So I need to. And and the sergeant's like, "Oh, calm down, man, calm down." Because I kind of know him. And I was like, "All right." I was like, "No, no." I was like, "We're good. We're good." I just don't want to. I just don't want to. You know, I know I'm dirty, so I'm gonna go get tested now, and make sure I'm clean. And you know, that was my feeling. Like, what right. the hell is going on? Like, we all grew up together. We worked together. We risked our lives with each other out there. Like we risked our lives. And now because the mayor says something like all my whole upper echelon, like I I just, their spines got struck out of them. And then when it got down to actually people are now starting to lose their jobs over this to watch that happen and to feel what was going on at that point. And it was four months and it was significantly worse every day. I, you know, my wife was begging me to leave because she saw how stressed out I was. I wasn't, I wasn't sleeping. My right eye was, I looked like Lucky Luciano. My right eye was almost all the way down and it was fluttering the whole time. And I couldn't get it to stop. And I was like testing my blood pressure and it would be fine as long as there weren't incidents like that, you know, because again, we're cops, man. Like I've been in, you know, even, even as a young child, I've been in situations that, I pray my kids never experience and I'm pretty calm guy. Like I pray, I could kind of step out of, I could kind of step out of what's going on. Um, so, but it was really weighing on me, you know, the, the last eight years of being demonized and now this, like I'm the bad guy, you know, and everyone's, you know, all my friends that aren't cops are texting me. I'm really sorry. This is happening to you. I'm really sorry. And I'm like, Hey, listen, man, it, you know, it is what it is. I just, I, you know, it, it is what it is, but it's, it, it was the most discriminatory thing 
I've ever seen. It, it mirrors only things that I've read about in history. And for everyone to just normalize it was truly more defeating to me. And it started to turn me away from my coworkers as well. Um, and I've had those incidents out there on the street as well, where I'm like, hey, man, we're playing a dangerous game. And if you're not, we're not on the same page, let's not play this game together. Like, because one, one of us is going to get killed, you know? And, and that's kind of how I started to feel like, oh, like where, you know, and, and just around that time too, not, not to ramble, but just around that time too, the, the NYPD had just came out with a training and it was called ABLE training. And basically what they would try to do is they would give you a scenario where they were trying to teach you moral integrity. And how they would do that is like they gave like a slight scenario about some study that like a bunch of college kids, they would tell one at a time to walk across like the corridor of the campus at a time when no one was around and a medical emergency would happen in front of them. You know, and then it was basically all percentage wise, how many people step in, how many people don't. And, you know, all this stuff was going around and I'm like, yeah. So I just kept throwing 10 percent. 10%, 10%, 10%. And, he, and he's like, why 10%? And I'm like, because that's just what it is throughout life. That's what it is now. I'm like, this is a joke to me. This whole thing is a joke. Because if you became a police officer, and you're not going to help somebody that you see something wrong, and you're going to walk the other way, you're in the wrong profession. So you should already have moral integrity. But even in that training, when they got to me, and they wanted to know my opinion, I really, and I've never a guy that like speaks out in training, even if it's nonsense. You know, uh, I, I'll, I'll just sit there. I'm like, whatever. Let me just get through this day. Go back to do my job. Right. But right. that time they got to me and they're like, what do you think about this train? And I was like, I think that no one in this room has moral integrity, including myself, because if we did, none of us would work for Mayor de Blasio. None of us would still be on the job after this riot. And now we're all forcing each other to get vaccinated and everyone's looking the other way. So I don't think anyone in this room has moral integrity, including myself. So I think it trains a bunch of bullshit. And that's. And but that's the level that I was at at that point. Right. You know? and, yeah. and, and I had been a supervisor for about 10 years and I learned how to really take my emotion out of things, right. you know, really just be like, you know, hey, listen, this guy's got stuff going on that I don't know about. I need to like understand it. You know, I got to I can't let someone bring me up to their level. I have to bring them down like supervising, you know, especially, you know, we deal with a lot of mental illness in our profession and a lot of, you know, it's a tough, tough profession. You know, guys have really rough lives, right. uh, but I couldn't hold it anymore, man. I'm telling you, I couldn't hold it. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, you know, it's, it's important. I know, I know, you know, I'm sure there's even, you know, listeners of this podcast that are tired of hearing about COVID. I've talked about the mandates on the podcast, um, because I, th- I think it's disgusting and I think they're evil. Um, but you know, I think it's important to have someone on like yourself to talk about it because right now it's being forgotten. And like you said at the, at the top here that, you know, right now, um, there's, there's officers that are on the cusp of losing their jobs that have appealed and they're waiting to hear back what their appeals, um, you know, if their appeals were upheld or, or not. And there's, there's still officers that are being greatly affected by this. And it's, it's barely in the news. No one's talking about it. No one, no one, no one cares. Everyone's on to the next story. And, and so I think it's, an, I, I, you know, I just appreciate you coming on and, and talking about it from the heart. Um, I guess my next question is like, what, what's next steps for you? You, you made the, the, really difficult decision to retire, uh, in February of this year. Um, 
uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you're, you're doing as well as you are, but what are the next steps for you? Um, are there next steps? I, I don't even know if you can really talk about next steps for you in regards to, um, you know, these mandates and, and, and what they drove you to do. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm involved in multiple lawsuits. I'm involved in a ton of complaints. Uh, I actually even speak and I get involved and I help out in lawsuits that I'm not even named in. You know what I mean? <laughs> Just because there's so many different ways that these lawyers have approached it and there wasn't a uniformed response to this whole thing to begin with. And not only for the NYPD, for teachers, for firefighters, for nurses, for all of them. So I'm starting to like you know, get more involved in that aspect of it because there are so many ways to attack it. But I mean, for me, I think the clearest to to one is that, you know, listen, the, the, the OEO law is written. You know, if any of you guys like know me, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I post the law and then mm-hmm. I'll post like what happened. And they're not like I'll send the handbook out like and and the city didn't follow any of it. And, you know, if this was five years ago, I mean, I'd be a millionaire right now. You know, so like I don't understand like what's going on in the world, what's going on in the city of New York. But, yeah, that's that's it. I'm doing whatever I can. And it's really at this point, I, you know, I don't even care about myself financially. Uh, You know, God's graced me. I've I've you know, I was always a saver. You know, I did 18 years. I was a supervisor, a little bit over 10 of those. I always did overtime. Uh, I always saved. I always took home a little bit less of a check or, or a lot less of a check. Um, and then, you know, I just have a, you know, I have a great work ethic, work ethic. Um, I started a small business down here in Florida. Um, I was thinking about going back into law enforcement, but, uh, you know, like when we spoke offline, it was just, you know, I was a New York city kid. I grew up in New York city, man. I see things going on there that like, I could, I could pick out that people like, what the hell's going on? You know, uh, you know, if I'm out with my wife and I'm pushing her into a store or something, she's like, what are you doing? What's going on? You know, I know that city. I know that vibe. I know when things aren't right. I know who's not right. I'm down here. I really don't know who the players are. I don't know the neighborhoods. I don't know the streets well. I don't even know the laws or the procedural to be a cop here. And I'll tell you, after 18 years, um, I'm pretty beat up, dude. So I was like as young as I am and I'm in good shape and I could still fit into my my first dress uniform that I got. And that was always my goal. Or, you know, <laughs> like I, you know, that was always my goal to retire, you know, with the same dress uniform that I went in with. And, um, you know, so I stay in shape. I try to stay as good as I can. But I think mentally for me to try to learn a completely, totally ge- geographic area, uh, relearn the players, relearn everything. I just didn't have the heart. And my wife pretty much begged me not to. She yeah. was like, you know, I'd rather you be home with the kids. You were never home. You, you know, even like towards the end of my career, I went to a more administrative role, uh, but I was still never home, you know? Right. So she was like, Hey, why don't you try something else? So, you know, I started a little business down here, you know, God's blessed us. We're, do- we're doing a right. Um, and you know, that's kind of it for me. Like, you know, I still love New York. I still own my home in New York. Um, my friends, my family's there. I, you know, I pray for it. I, you know, I speak out a lot and I speak out not, you know, like people call me, I I laugh because people call me a right wing nut and all this stuff. And meanwhile, I beat up the Republicans more than I beat up the Democrats half the time. Cause I, you know, so like, you know, and I know most of these guys, it's not like I don't have this. I, you know, I know them personally. 
I went to high school with them. I, you know, I helped run their camp at like, you know, just so it's for me, I still have a voice. I, you know, I, I thought about running, uh, but my wife just really didn't want to be in New York anymore. She didn't yeah. want my children there. And yeah. I, I know, and everything that she told me made complete sense to me. Um, and I didn't want to keep her stressed out. She was super stressed. And I was like, you know what? I was like, I was like, if she's going to be happy, let's do it. I bought a house in Florida thinking I could just hold her off. And she, you know, we were here one day and she's like, we're moving, pack everything. Let's go. Um, and so she's super happy now. My kids are happy. Uh, I'm happier, but you know, I, you know, I'm, you know, you, you know, you, you won't hear my voice shut up for a long time, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. And I, I, you know, I appreciate that. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I, it's just good to 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 hear where you're at and and what's going on and um you know making it you know 18 years, um nearly 18 years in the NYPD that's no joke and and uh, um to hear where you're at and what you're doing um I I appreciate you taking time to talk to me, kind of like a good segue to kind of get into um your career. We kind of we kind of started backwards with you a lot of times when I have people. Uh, who are active or retired in law enforcement. Usually I kind of start at the beginning, but with you, I, I, I wanted to dive right into the end and, and like what brought you out. Cause I think it's really important. I know you're passionate about it. Uh, I'm passionate about it. I, I, you know, because I think it's wrong, but let's kind of rewind and go back um, to, to the beginning and, and just kind of would like to know, you know, where you grew up, how you grew up, if you had family in law enforcement, um, and, and what those formative years were like for you, um, you know, before you got into police work. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Uh, I was born in 1980. Uh, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn at that time was probably one of the safest neighborhoods you could live in in New York City. New York City was a city of crime. Uh, mafia controlled my neighborhood. Uh, I grew up on 68th Street between 20th and 21st. You know, I had cafes all along 20th Avenue, 19th Avenue, 20th Avenue, and you know, Sammy the Bull Gravano and John Gotti and all these guys are running around my neighborhood. Um, my parents were children of immigrants. Uh, my mother was one of seven. She was the first person in her family to graduate high school. Um, They had very little means. She didn't have a lot of money. Um, My father uh, served in Vietnam. He was a disabled veteran. He won two Purple Hearts. Uh, He was he was in the 101st Airborne. Um, He came back. You know, he was a rough guy. My dad, he was a street guy. He grew up. uh, His father died when he was 10. He grew up on the projects in the Lower East Side. Um, his mother, uh, you know, great lady, but she had some mental issues. So my father, nonetheless, was a rough guy. He was a street guy. He did a lot of jobs. He had a, he was a construction worker. He was a truck driver. He had a problem holding jobs um, because he could, you know, he just had very bad PTSD. And he wasn't a guy that really took to orders well. And he couldn't. He couldn't control his emotion, like, you know, but he was a great guy. He loved me. He loved my mother. Um, you know, like we were his, you know, we were his everything. So, but we, you know, I definitely came from um, very little means, you know, poor, you know, like we didn't have a lot of money at all. Um, I moved, uh, you know, I, was, I had no family in law enforcement. 
Um, my father had gotten hurt at work and he was unable to walk for about two years. He fell on a construction site in Manhattan. He fell from the seventh floor to the fourth floor. He oh, broke cool. his back in a million pieces. Um, so he was, he really, he was unable to work. My mother at that time, you know, cause she was very low skilled, you know, she, even though she graduated high school, she was probably the highest skilled in my entire family. You know, I have hundreds of cousins, um, you know, and uncles, but she's probably, she, you know, she became a school crossing guard. So that's about my only, my only interaction with the police department at all, other than like street interaction as a kid, because, you know, I was, uh, I was a street kid. Like I grew up hanging out in the parks, um, you know, and I had real, no family in law enforcement. I'm the Mm -hmm. first one in my family in law enforcement. And even at the time that I went in, in 2004, I, you know, it was kind of frowned upon, not only in my family, but in my neighborhood. You know, I, I had lived I was living in Staten Island at that at that time. Um, you know, the Italian community in, in New York was always, you know, when I was a kid, we were minorities. You know, we were the uh, you know, we weren't, uh, you know, the evil white man that we became today. Um, so, you know, we were more of ethnic. You know, it's one of the reasons that uh, Bill de Blasio changed his name from Warren Wilhelm. So he could be more ethnic. He could fit in with the with the minorities, right? Wait, he, to them. Hold on. He changed his name? I didn't know that. Yeah, his name's Warren Wilhelm. <laughs> yeah, look it up. Mind so, blown. Wow. Okay. So, you know, so that's kind of the environment that I grew up in. You know, um, it was, you know, it was loving. My mother loved me. My father loved me. Um, I did see very early on, and I spoke about this on a couple of interviews, but I don't know if anyone's familiar with the documentary Storm Over Brooklyn. Um, if you are, it's on HBO. It's uh, I was out on my stoop. It happened in uh, 1989, an August night. I don't I remember the exact date. I think it was August 25th. I was eight years old. I was out on my stoop. Um, and basically, uh, a couple of black kids came into the neighborhood. Uh, there was some other issue that happened. At, at, long story short, at eight years old, uh, basically witnessed a murder um, in front of me. Um, wow. And, you know, so it was, you know, so like, but I, but I, I went through like a very high stress period. I, I developed, um, I had shingles at eight years old and I was like, I was throwing up in my room for two weeks, but my mother's love and my father's love and my two sisters like kind of healed me and got me out of the fear that I felt after that. Um, you know, and there was tons of like, not, I don't want to say riots, but there was marches in my neighborhood constantly without Sharpton. And this is at eight years old. And they're like, you know, F you, you dumb, you know, you know, guineas and grease balls. And it was just so much hate, you know? And, um, like, so I experienced all that and I did start to like, just because I'm a kid and I, I was there, I'm watching the news and I'm watching what the news media is reporting and what the politicians are saying. And I kind of already at that point was like kind of awoken to New York City politics, even at eight years old. Um, I never thought I would be a cop. Um, My sister winded up uh, dating and then eventually marrying um, uh, uh, Guy Terry O'Connor. He was a sergeant in uh, Bed-Stuy for a long time in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. Um, Great guy. Um, And, you know, it's it's weird. Like, I I always could see that maybe I could be a cop because just the way I was in in my neighborhood, I, you know, like I didn't like I didn't let kids come in and graffiti on the wall. I didn't let anybody come in and uh, bother the little kids or anybody like that. So, 
And, you know, and I wasn't a bad kid. Like, you know, I would hold the door for women. I would clean up the mess. If one of my friends threw something in the park, I'd be like, hey, pick it up, you know. Or if somebody mounted off to an older person, I would tell them to shut up. Like, you know what I mean? I always right. intervened in those situations. So I could kind of see that maybe I could be a cop, but I had gotten in trouble. Um, and I, I was arrested um, as, a, as a youth. Um, so I never thought that I could be a cop, but it's kind of weird how it happened. Um, my sister signed me up for the test when she started dating, uh, her, her husband and okay. I got a letter in the mail and I was like, what the hell is this? And they're like, Oh, come take the test this day. You've been uh, registered. So I'm like, ah, well, so I, I, I talked to my sister. I'm like, that's, is that weird? Do the cops just send you stuff? And she's like, no, I, I, I signed you up. She's like, I signed you up. Just go take it. So, but I spoke to my brother-in-law. I was like, Hey, listen, I got in trouble, but it was, it was minor nonsense. And he's like, Hey, listen, you're not a bad kid. Don't worry about it. He's like, it's stupid. You don't really have a record. Don't worry about it. You got a couple of stupid summonses for drinking in the park. You know, I was a city kid. We're hanging right. out park after dark Giuliani era. You're getting, you're getting lit up with summonses. <laughs> like you're getting arrested <laughs> and brought in for nothing. Like you're like, wait, right. what did I do? You know, well, you didn't do anything, but the other kid did, you know, it's like, well, what the hell? So right. it was, just kind of a different time frame and um so anyway i winded up i i took the test i did well um you know there was there was a physical part there was a psychological part uh you know it was a bunch of different parts of the exam and at that time new york city was kind of hurting for police and i just i bruised through it next thing i know six months later i'm sitting at my desk uh, i was working for a uh like a factory like selling metal name plates and stuff at the time for like cars and stuff and um, and uh, I just got the call. Yeah, congratulations! You've been accepted to the police academy. And I was like, "What?" And they're like, "Yeah, yeah." I was like, "What else, what else do I got to do?" They're like, "Nothing. You got to report on Monday. You're you're you're, uh, you're accepted to the police academy." And I was like, "Oh man!" Like it just happened so quick because right. I had heard in the years prior it took so many people years to get on that job. Right. So I got hired like super quick. Um, and yeah, it was, it was just a great experience, man. I got hired, you know, the Academy was really good. I met a ton of great people that I'm still friends with till today. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. I, I do have like one quick question. You talk about, you know, Giuliani and, 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 you know, obviously I, if I remember right, Giuliani was, was the one that kind of brought in the whole stop and frisk and, and really cracked down on, on low level crime and, and really tried to work on cleaning the city up. Obviously, there were, you know, some problems with that, some, you know, possibly some overstepping in those years. But compare that with how things are now. This is completely going off script here. But what, no, no, what's, your, yeah. what's your yeah. opinion like between those Giuliani years and now, you know, uh, de Blasio and now um, Eric Adams? Like, yeah, how so, do you how do you make how do you it, it's just wild to me how different it is now. So, you know, so originally Dinkins era, you know, is very, it, it's almost a mirror of what we're seeing today. You know, New York City was a city of crime, you know, trains are filled with graffiti. Uh, my mother, uh, my, I'm sorry, my grandmother lived in Sunset, Brooklyn. Um, it was crack infested neighborhood. Um, it looked like a, a movie, like what you would see on movies. You know, people would fire barrels in the street, prostitutes everywhere. We would walk on crack vials to get to to go see my grandmother. Um, crackheads everywhere. People that may be dead. You know, uh, the trains were like homeless shelters. They were very scary places. Uh, my mother, like when we would take the train to see my grandmother, she would carry a huge butcher knife in her bag. Um, wow. You know, it's and, you know, we've had incidents even that there was so much confrontation and stuff. And, uh, you know, 
like growing up and then going into the Giuliani era, I was, you know, in coming into my teens now. And now I'm hanging out in the park and maybe not a troublemaker, but, you know, I'm kind of the element you need to keep in check. Right. Like right. you don't want 50, 60 kids hanging out in a schoolyard all night. Nothing good's going to happen. Right. Right. So I saw like, you know, the park after dark. Right. Minor crime comes in. He's policing minor crimes now. For me, I'm a young kid. I don't understand it. I'm like, what the hell? You know, I'm playing basketball. Next thing I know, the sun creaked down and I'm, I got my hands on the fence and I'm getting searched. So I didn't understand it at the time until I was about, you know, and I had a little bit of a disdain for the police. But about until the time I really started just stop hanging out in the park. I'm like, I'm not hanging out with these kids no more. I'm going to like get myself a job in the city. And then like once I started like working full time instead of just part time jobs, I never got bothered again. And then I was like, now I'm walking around the city and it's like 98, 99, 2000. And I'm on 42nd Street and I'm like, oh, my God, what the hell happened in this place? This place is gorgeous. Like, you know, I, it went from constant you know, where I was always constantly on guard, ready to get into a fist fight to defend myself to I'm walking in the streets free and clear at two, three o'clock in the morning after I left a bar. And yeah, I, I did that at 18 and 19 years old in the city because New York City was a great place to grow up, <laughs> um, you know, but but like it, the, the city completely transformed and to watch it, how it happened and that same neighborhood that my grandmother lived in that was crack infested was now the real estate is flowing through the roofs. Business is coming in. Um, you know, jobs are springing up everywhere. The neighborhood over was Red Hook and it was burned out buildings. And now it's like this, you go, go try to buy something in Red Hook. Now it's a $2 million. You know, they would have continued to be burned out buildings, Harlem. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there's so many neighborhoods in New York, even like the, you know, is so many neighborhoods in New York that because of that style of policing, um, it really deterred crime. We had this omnipresence in the city that the police were everywhere. And I'll tell you, I still kind of have it with me till today. And I, I do believe omnipresence is warranted in a city of now, you know, they say it's 8 million, but I want to say it's closer to 13 million. Um, Cause if it was 8 million 20 years ago, it's probably 13, 14 million now because it, right. the city's packed, man. The city, like, you know, city, the, the outer boroughs, like it's nothing like when I was a kid, there's so many more people there now um, up until like the great, you know, the great migration, which I'm down in Florida. I don't know how many people we lost then, but, right. but, uh, but yeah. So like that, that constant pressure of broken windows policing is necessary now, I think they did overstep once I started getting into like becoming like a five year guy, like like five, six, seven years. Now the city's like completely safe. Crimes on the floor, murders on the floor, even the high crime neighborhoods, like the shootings are down. The, the real estate prices are up. There's construction everywhere. And they kept on like with the stop question frist and New York City's notorious for the numbers game. You know, anybody listen to this, if you ever watched The Wire, whoever, whoever yeah. was, whoever was like advising for that definitely came from the NYPD when they would do the Comstat, because that's yeah. literally how it is. You know, they care about numbers. They don't care about actual results. Um, so, you know, I, like I was an anti-crime for a long time and, and they would push, oh, you need 20 stop question and frisk. And I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. I'll, I'll stop people when I see them. You know, so I kind of never bought into that. But like you get a weaker guy 
um, that's going to get bullied and they're going to do it. They're going to stop people for no reason to take a name, to put it on a piece of paper. And like, what are right. you doing? And I just got off the yeah. express bus. Like, what are you bothering for? Right. You know? Um, yeah. So I do believe in broken windows theory. And then what you're seeing today is hands off policing and lawlessness. And the city of New York's a scary place. Once again, people are afraid. I know grown men that are three times my size that tell me they're afraid to take the train. They're afraid to walk down the block in the city that, you know, they don't, there's not that sense that the police are there anymore. And the criminal doesn't feel that either because, you know, when I was a kid and even into being a cop and a line that got used on me and a line that I used all the time was, Hey, you like, uh, you like the weekend? I would tell someone when they were mounting off and it's been told to me because basically what they're telling you is if, I'm going to lock you up. You're going to spend the weekend in jail. Yeah, you're going to get a slap on your wrist and you're not going to go to jail for a long time, but you're going to spend the weekend in the bookings. And do you want to ruin your weekend? And now we let people out in four hours. I, re- I read an article today right in my neighborhood in Staten Island, a uh, 18-year-old male uh, assaults someone for their bike, beats them up, pulls out a knife, robs them, takes their knife, takes their money off their person. Um, he's arrested. He gets caught. He's arrested. He's released in four hours. That's insane. For a robbery. With you a know? weapon. Yeah. So, and, and I'm sure down the line that, that those charges are going to get dropped. So, but even the initial, like I always say, like my thing is, and I always say about all my friends too, all the, all the kids I grew up with really did turn out to be great people, like great men, great neighbors, great citizens of the community. Um, but I always said to them, imagine if when we got locked up as kids, we only spent four hours in jail. Imagine what would have happened to us, you know, right. like, I said a night in jail is like the best social service you could ever get. Hey, do I, do I want this type of life? Do I want to be a gangster? Cause this is going to be your life. Like, and, and that's, you know, and we went completely away from that to, Hey, no, you know, you should never feel unsafe when the cops are around. Like, no, you should, you should feel a little unsafe when the cops are around. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I totally agree. I mean, if, if you want to engage in, in uh, criminal behavior, y- your head should be on a swivel when the cops are around. And uh, yeah, we've kind of we've kind of lost that. Um, did want to uh, just dive into like some of the stuff you did in NYPD as well. Um, I know, you know, in a in a I believe a patrol function and maybe as a sergeant as well, you were part of something called Operation Impact, anti crime and in field intelligence. Can you talk about those units or or what you did in those in those uh, units as an yes. officer? Yeah. So Operation Impact is immediately when you come out of the police academy. And what that is, is basically they send you into a high crime precinct. They sent me to the 120 at the time, uh, 120 precinct, which is, you know, it's what's considered in a house. It's on Staten Island. Um, again, at that time, there was really no cops on Staten Island. So when you're in the academy, they ask you, like, give us three precincts you want to go to. So my brother-in-law worked in Brooklyn. He's like, listen, don't work on Staten Island because... You don't want it. You live there. Like you don't want to run. You're going to run into people. Like, so I was like, okay. So I put down all three Brooklyn commands. Boom. I get sent to the one, two, one impact. They're like, okay, I'm on Staten Island, whatever, you know? So I'm living in Staten Island. I'm working in Staten Island. And basically what they taught us is broken windows, policing, police to minor crimes. Hey, we, we took a shooting here. We're, we took a shooting here. We, we need to get information. So we need to go out and make arrests for minor crimes and bring them in and have the detective squad debrief everybody and have, you know, the field intelligence officer debrief everybody, the prisoners to try to get some information. And hey, maybe we even come up with a gun that night because we locked up the guy for smoking weed on the street or the five kids for being disorderly in the park after dark or or whatever it was. Right. Right. 
So, and we just showed presence. We showed our omnipresence and we did, we pushed crime all over that precinct. It would like, boom, 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 wherever we were, there was no crime. And wherever we weren't, there were crime. Right. So right. I, I kind of, I started to see that, like, so that, that taught me that, um, right immediately after impact, I get sent to like a slower precinct, which is the one, two, three precinct. Um, they call it like squirrel patrol. You know, which, you know, it's an unfair name kind of because you're still in New York. You get a ton of pass through and there wasn't a lot of cops there at all. So I went there. I did midnight patrol for a while. Um, I was pretty active. I was trying to get myself back to the 120. Uh, you know, I made a lot of arrests because, you know, I, I don't want to knock the guys that were there, but they weren't proactively policing the way I was trained. They were a little older, you know, they were more towards the end of their career. They were probably about where I am now, like, even though I'm no longer, you know, but they were probably like 18, 19 years. They were seasoned patrol guys. They were great cops. They taught me a lot of stuff, man. You know, they, they really did like safety tactics, searching, um, but they just weren't proactive. Like they just wanted to end their career. They weren't going out to, you know, if they, you know, they weren't going to go out and shake the trees, like what we would call it. Right. And I did. I wanted to be active. I didn't know what I wanted to do really. Uh, but I did see the anti-crime team, you know, you know, they would come in, they would work out for an hour, then they would go out and they would make an arrest every night and they would get bad guys and they would chase all like the patrol patterns, anything that was going on, burglary pattern, robbery pattern, whatever it may be. So I got an opportunity to go there early on, just basically due to my work ethic. I didn't really know anybody. Um, I had known the guys that I got sent there with who had the same amount of time as me. Um, and, you know, like, and they were a bunch of active guys and actually, you know, a lot of them are big bosses now, or like, you know, like really like had great careers. Some of them even retired, um, you know, from various injuries or whatever, but you know, the guys I, I, I worked midnights with in that, at that time in my career, it was like, they were just, you know, we were just pretty, we were very active. So I got an opportunity to go to anti-crime very early and basically what you do, what I did every day, which really separated me, I think, was I would go in every day early. I would work out an hour early. Then I would go to the computer and I would run every 61 that happened in my precinct. A 61, I'm sorry, is a complaint report. So I would read every complaint that happened from the night before, not only in my precinct, but in the surrounding precinct, the border precinct. Wow. So I would, read, so I would know everything that happened that day. And I would try to piece together basically our plan of attack for that day and like where we would focus on the patterns and do that. So by doing that, you know, I'm, and I'm not going to sit here and say like I was the best cop ever. I wasn't. But I had a great work ethic. So I really like the, the arrest that we made at that time. You know, I always I would, you know, and at the time I was still a young cop. I was probably like three, four years on, five years on. And I was still kind of learning, but I had stopped so many people that my tactics got really good. And the guys I was doing it with, we just really got to know each other very well. Yeah. And we just closed out some major like citywide patterns, burglary patterns, grand larceny patterns. You know, we had a couple of great search warrants. And it really stemmed from, I'm not going to say it was like my sharp eye, even though I do have a very sharp eye, I still do. Um, but it really just stemmed from doing that, just knowing everything. Like information really is power and then applying it, you know. Right. I didn't, you know, if my boss told me to sit somewhere for eight hours, I sat there for eight hours. I didn't go get a cup of coffee. And I, you know what I mean? I didn't like, you know, but I would go out and I ventured. And basically through that, you know, I get a call one day from uh, – 
the the field intelligence offer and he's like oh congratulations you're uh you're gonna work with me now you're, you're getting promoted and i was like oh well, i didn't i didn't put in for that though you know <laughs> and uh <laughs> and he's like yeah you know and uh he was a good guy you know but he really wanted me to work with him just basically due to my work ethic again i didn't i didn't have family in there like i didn't know anyone i didn't really grow up with those guys because they were a bit older than me and i was a punk kid so like what they do remember about me is like i'm a punk kid like right like so <laughs> You know, so, so like, you know, so I get into that and that's basically, that's more, I still did. I still would assist with the anti-crime team because I just love that type of work. I really, it's just something I always had passion for, like really going after bad guys. And I saw the effects it has on, on the community. And I really just, and at the time I was like, I, I have the best job in the world because, you know, things are going on and I get to be the guy that goes there. You know, I get to be the guy that someone's breaking into my neighbor's house and I get to go find that guy. I have helicopters at my disposal. I could key the radio and have 50 cars here in a minute. Like, you know, and and, you know, so I really took great pride in in doing that. So and then when I moved to field intelligence, I still he led the the guy that took me. He you know, I kind of I kind of complained about going because I was like, hey, I, you know, I'm, I, why would why do I have to go? I was like, this, I'm, I'm great here. Like I do a lot of good work here. And, uh, right. So he, the deal was he would let me work with anti-crime once a week. So I was like, <laughs> OK. So I always did that. But through that, I did a lot of I would put together our major players so, all right, these are who this is who we're going to be on the lookout for. I would put the, the dots on the map like, OK, yeah, uh, we took seven sixty ones here. I think in this area, this guy lives over here. Now, they have other units that actually put the dots on the map, but I would really piece it together strong. OK, like, you know, like, so I would really say, all right, well, this perp lives here. This guy lives here. That guy lives there. I would pass any information I got along and I would debrief everybody, every prisoner that came in. I, I brought them in a room. I would debrief them. You know, let me know. Like, what, what do you know? Um, I wasn't great at that um, just because I was in that precinct so long. And, I, you know, like the, 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 the criminal element in that precinct respected me. They didn't like me. You know? <laughs> right. And I'm, not, and I'm not like, I'm not like, you know, I, I always want to see your other motive. Like, if you're telling me that this guy is dealing drugs, why are you telling me that when I know you're a drug dealer? Like, you know what I mean? So right. I was, uh, but even with that, I was successful. We did do a lot of great warrants. We still made a lot of good pattern closing arrests. Um, I made sergeant out of that spot. Um, I did four by 12 uh patrol in the six six precinct in brooklyn um and i didn't do that for that long um you know i thought like going to brooklyn because i was a staten island cop i would be a little bit under because brooklyn's a little busier um than staten island's a lot more influx of jobs and it's about the same amount of cops you know you're turning out four cars a night and you're getting 30 40 jobs that night you know wow that's a lot it's a lot, man. So, and that wasn't a heavy precinct. Like, it wasn't a heavy precinct as far as shootings, but you still had, you know, you had your emotionally disturbed people, you had burglaries, you had missing children. All of these things require so much work, you know? And um, so I did that. Um, you know, I, you know, I kind of learned a lot of lessons real quick about being a supervisor. Um, I don't really want to go into too many stories. I don't want to ramble on you, but. Just basically, I learned I learned how to be a supervisor real quick. I learned that basically 
There's no one out there for you. You got to you got to be comfortable with every decision you make. Same like when I was a cop, but now I'm in charge of every operation that's running on the street that night. Yeah. Right. The lieutenant's hiding somewhere. You know, the captain's hiding somewhere. They're going to critique me at the end of this. But it's all my my say. So, you know, I really took hold of that. And, you know, I, I didn't do it that long because. They moved me over like I was in like conditions, crime sergeant, and you know, and that's really where I got to handpick my guys, and we just did some great work, man. And you know, it was just, and I just took in all the things that I learned. I had these young guys, I trained them exactly how I was trained, and I even brought into my own element of it. And we just, you know, we were we were very high producing arrest, everything, you know, and like we really quelled a lot of stuff that was going on in the precinct at that time and we just did some great work and i did that for a while um and i loved it i loved every second of it um so so uh, what i'm getting from you is you were a pretty proactive um guy you liked being on the street you liked you know really really getting after the criminal element and uh, you know a, a couple things that you said that really stuck out to me is is i think sometimes people think that cops are just kind of like maybe not idiots, but we're, we're just, you know, we're just, uh, we're not that smart, but there, there's so much work that goes into identifying, um, you know, those players in the areas where you work and, um, using low level crime to have those interactions with those higher level players. And basically, you know, my, when, when I was in Lancaster city, like my desire was just to make life miserable for the guys I knew that were engaged in criminal activity. So if that meant I stopped them for stupid stuff um, and and got a contact with them, maybe that contact meant I got dope off of them or a gun off of them. But there there there's a there's a method to the madness. It's not just like hey, patrol officers are just going out, um, you know, anti crime guys are just going out and they're just like rolling around just seeing if something happens. They they know you know, they kind of have their, their ear to the heartbeat of what's going in, in those areas and are using that, that, uh, broken windows, you know, philosophy of, you know, Hey, let's, let's nail them for the small crime to try to get into that bigger stuff. Cause you know, I would always tell guys when I was training them, you're not going to roll around. It's going to be rare that you're going to roll around and just see a felony in front of you. How you're going to get into those felonies is, you know, using those minor crimes to have those those contacts and concentrating those efforts in those areas where, you know, you have high level of violence, high level of drug dealing, whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really appreciate you describing those, those roles and, and what you were doing. Uh, cause, cause I think it just adds to, you know, what, what police officers are doing every day. It shows people what, what police officers are doing every day. It's not haphazard. There's a method to it, I think, um, for the good ones, the ones that are, that, enjoy the job or there to, to get after it. Um, you know, there's, there's a method. They, they take it seriously. Um, yeah. so, you know, at some point, um, you get promoted to Lieutenant. What, what, when you got promoted to Lieutenant, where were you and, and what did you, um, get promoted to Lieutenant into? Like, what were you doing at that point? All right. So it was like kind of weird, like it was a little weird. So I stayed doing that work for a while. Uh, Bill de Blasio comes in, I work under him for about two years doing that same type of work. Um, and the division really starts in the NYPD. Um, 
I'm like, I literally start to question what I'm doing because, you know, everyone around me is getting basically their guns taken, stuff like that for nothing. You know, uh, the mayor's on TV every day calling us racist, they're demonizing stop question frisk, they're demonizing anti-crime, they're demon, they're nitpicking on every arrest that we do. Hmm. Um, so I like, I just, you know, I had a, I, I was married at that point. I had two little girls at that point. One of my daughters is uh, legally blind. She, uh, wasn't really walking. She didn't walk till she was about three. So I was doing like intense physical therapy therapy with her every day. You know, I, I would go into work at about four o'clock in the evening, got not get home till about four o'clock the next morning. And then I was up with my daughter from seven o'clock to four o'clock again. Um, so I really wasn't sleeping, uh, you know, constantly getting demonized. Uh, and at that point, I'm like, you know what, maybe I'll go to the detective squad. I'll put in for something. I, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just share a story about what really made me do what really yeah. made me do that. Sure. So a lot of the arrests that we did make and a lot of the intelligence that we made stemmed from marijuana. So we at the time we were getting um, we were getting a, a grand larceny pattern from auto. Basically, people walking around pulling door handles. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was happening in like a six block radius. It was happening, you know, from one avenue to the next in a six block radius. All of them happened the night prior. All of them happened the night prior at around two o'clock in the morning. Like around that time, I had a video of a guy with, with a hood around that time. You know, video still really wasn't so prevalent at that point, like, like ring cameras and all that stuff. But I get like a grainy video when I go to a canvas. And. It was around two o'clock. So then the following day, I tell my guys, all right, we're going to do a later one, right? Like we're going to come in later. We're going to get, we're going to get this guy because we get hit again the next night. So the next night now we're out and we would do the same thing. We had what was like an older Chevy Impala at the time, but we made it look like a Mexican cab. Like we had all the, uh, the, the cab things on it. And we sat up in the area in the six block radius, right in the heart. Me and uh, and uh, I had a, a young kid that I liked. He was a real hard worker on patrol. I, I recruited him in. I was kind of training him at that point. I, I let him work. Like I would always train everybody, make them work with me first, and then I would let them go spread their wings. Like so. So I have him sitting with me. We're sitting up there. Sure enough, here comes this kid. It's about one thirty at night. It's kind of desolate. Um, it's on Ninth Avenue in the 60s in Brooklyn, um, real predominantly Chinese and Hispanic area. It's a, this is a Hispanic male. He's walking. He pulls a blunt out of his pocket. He lights it. He starts smoking it. He clips the blunt. He puts the blunt back in his pocket. I continue to watch him. He's looking now, actively looking into windows of vehicles. Like he's looking in with his hand right. peered against it, starts to pull on door handles. Now, in New York City, that is a crime. He's excising control of your vehicle. He's picking up the door handle and opening the door of your vehicle. But unless he takes something, there's no way that the Brooklyn DA will prosecute that. So now I'm just setting my guy up for failure. I'm setting him up for an unlawful arrest because it's going to get declined prosecution. So I'm like, what am I going to do? I watch him do this for about five cars and we start to lose sight of him. So now this is a new kid. He hasn't done like he hasn't done like plain clothes work for a long time. So I'm like, hey, listen, do me a favor. Don't hit the gas loud. When we start to follow him, just throw it in and go very slightly. 
Right. So whatever happens, the kid starts to move like a little quick. I don't remember like if an alarm went off or somebody just drove the way. I don't remember what startled him. But the kid that we were watching was pretty far from us this time. He made a left up the block. And the kid I'm with throws the car and drive. And I'm like, no, 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 Hits the <laughs> gas. And we get up to the block. And now the guy's standing there waiting for us because he hears the car. Right? So I'm like, screw it. Stop him. Right? Because you already seen us. He knows who right. we are. He stopped there on purpose like because he heard the car. Like he was just waiting to see who was coming around that corner. So I was like, shit, he definitely heard us, you know, because it's right. late at night. Nobody was really out. Um, so I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm like, I'm, you know, we put him up against the wall. We, you know, we, we take the blunt that we observed him smoking out of his right pocket. I even said it. I remember even calling him like it's in his right pocket, you know, takes out his right pocket, lock him up for the marijuana, right. uh, bring him back. He doesn't he won't talk. He won't tell me anything, whatever. But we get no no break ins of vehicles that night in that area. Right. Right. So the next day, you know, when you're when you're doing anti-crime, like you're on the phone with your commanding officer all the time. Like they want to know your plan of action, what's going on, any information you got, because like you're really their eyes and ears on the street. You know, they don't know. They're just going to take the credit for whatever you're doing and like trying to steer you a little better from a higher level. Right. So that day I get called into my my commanding officer's office the next day. He's like, hey, when you get in, come see me. I don't think anything of it. But when I go, when I go see him, he goes, you know, and again, this is the Bill de Blasio era. Now they're pushing on, oh, black and brown kids are locked up for marijuana at higher rates than than white kids. Right. Right. So I'm like, you know, and again, I don't know that to be true because all my friends were getting locked up for the same thing. Like, so I'm like, no, it's it's high crime areas. Right. Like, you know, like if right. you're an idiot hanging out in the park, you're going to get arrested for it. Like, I don't know whoever is doing it's doing it. Like, you know, so now I get called in the CEO's office and he's like, hey, John, what happened last night? I was like, no, no, what happened last night? He goes, why are you out there locking up innocent uh, Spanish kids for smoking marijuana? I thought we were trying to protect against this. And I'm like, excuse me. And he's like. Yeah. Like what happened? He goes, you, you see what's going on. We're trying to protect, you know, black and brown kids, again, predominantly getting locked up for marijuana at higher rates than uh, than white kids. I was like, well, they're getting arrested for rape, too, at higher rates. Are we going to forgive that? I'm like, I, I, I was like, I just police what the crime is. I said, and, and, and by the way, this is a kid that has multiple offenses. I said, and I didn't lock him up for marijuana. I locked him up because it was like frowned upon at that time to bring anyone in for smoking marijuana. If you like in a plainclothes unit or anything, it was like right. it was supposedly beneath you at this point, which I never right. agreed with. Because I always said, how are you getting the gun? How are you getting the intelligence? Exactly. How are you doing that? Exactly. I never agreed with it. So I, I said, hey, listen, you know, you, you have a pattern of car break ins right in that area. I changed my guys tours and we went there and. You know, like we we went there and this is your guy. You didn't take anything last night. This is him. Like I didn't lock him up for it because and I couldn't charge him with it. But whatever it is, what it, this is your guy. Like I was like, so I was like, I'm kind of confused. I don't know what you want me to tell my guys tonight. And then he's like, oh, no, you know, you're doing a great job. Right. He doesn't want to clip my wings. But I leave there and I'm like, what am I doing? You know, my wife's stressed out. I'm never home. I'm never sleeping. My mental health at this point is just shot. And, you know, all my friends are getting jammed up. I'm listening to the mayor demonize my whole profession. So I put in for the detective squad. When I put in for the detective squad in the NYPD, you got to go in front of what's called a board. And it's kind of like a draft. They'll interview you. They'll do all this stuff. I never go in front of that board. I submit for the board. My friend who's in internal affairs at the time calls me and he's like, hey, do you want to come here? I saw that you submitted. 
And I'm like, well, I don't know. And he's like, listen, you know what we do here? We, we're not here to jam guys up. We're here to prove the truth. We're here to prove, we're here to prove these, these people false. He's like, 99% of these complaints are nonsense. He's like, I'm there. He's like, most of the guys in this unit are a bunch of idiots. They never did police work. They're getting big and you could get somebody jammed up. He goes, with your experience, you're on the street. You're here helping guys. He goes, you'll work directly with me. I'm telling you right now, there's no nonsense. Because I was like, my thing is like, you know, I always have a high level integrity. I'll lock you up on the street if you're a cop and you're smoking weed in your car or you're doing something that... I'll lock you up. Like, I don't need to be in internal affairs. Like, you're not me. You don't represent me. You know, like, you know, like, I'm not losing, you know? So, like, I never really had a, a, like, a a super disdain for IB guys other than, like, the thing was that they don't know police work. Like, most of them go there that have never done the job. And now you're critiquing what I do. Well. So I was like, I don't know. Let me think about it. Blah, 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 blah. Situation at work's really getting no better. My daughter is, my daughter's is at this point, like, you know, she really does need more help. So I text him. I was like, hey, you know what, man? If you could get me with you, I'll do it. Next thing I know, I get transferred to internal affairs. Okay. So I go there. I wind up not working with the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not. <laughs> um, crazy experience. Uh, but again, I think I brought like a normal light. Like exactly, even though I winded up not working with him, I ended up into like an administrative role, which taught me a lot about, you know, computer work, writing reports. I never did an investigation. My only interviews in IAB were when I was on the other side of the table because I was accused of something. <laughs> so I never actually sat there and interviewed anyone um, right. like in that, in that aspect, like investigated anyone. Um, I brought like a normal voice to it, but it wasn't enough. I was only a sergeant, Bill de Blasio's the mayor. And the things that I saw coming down in there, I was like, oh my God, this is awful. So you have to do two years in there And, you know, and I would basically, you know, I would just, I was like, it made me a smarter cop. It really, the things I saw that go on in there, I was like, wow, you really can't do the type of work that I used to do anymore in the police department. Like that's done. I can never do that type of work again. It, that era is over. Like they don't want guys like me and my guys out there anymore. You kind of have to go into an investigative role. And that's kind of where I led all the guys that I had worked with previous, you know, and, and even people I met there, I'm like, Hey, just go long-term investigation at this point. You can't be doing street rips. You can't be doing narcotics, crime, none of that stuff. Um, now the guy that pulled me into the, the field intelligence spot, he was running building maintenance at the time, uh, which oversees all, it's like a lesser unit that oversees all like the maintenance in the priest and deals with the union. He needed a Sergeant. I had just completed my two years in IAB. He called me that same day, March 15th. I forget the, the exact year, but March, I remember the date was March 15th. It was the, it was my two years. He called okay. me and he would call me from time to time. Oh, how you doing? How's your daughter? How's everybody? Um, and, you know, I just pick up the phone, like sitting there, like kind of like thinking like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he just calls me and he's like, Hey, uh, I need a sergeant. You want to come here? And I'm like, Oh, please. So he gets me there. Uh, I already had passed the lieutenant's test at this point. And I told him that I was like, Hey, I'm on the lieutenant's list. You know, I don't know if you want to take me. I don't want to eat the spot. He's like, no, 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 come here. Um, I should have probably got promoted prior to 2020, but there was a slowdown. 
So I didn't get promoted actually until COVID hit. Okay. So COVID hit. I was the first class that got promoted um, during COVID. And because my job at the time was such a unique thing that I was doing. Now, I still went out on details at that time. Like I would go to Thanksgiving Day Parade. If anything sparked up, I would throw my uniform on. So like you still go to details and like you're Mm -hmm. still like – kind of a cop, but four, I mean, really four days a week, I'm, I'm totally into facility maintenance at this point. They keep me exactly where I'm, I am, put me in the higher, uh, the higher division of it and make me the overall integrity control officer. But really what I was doing is, is, uh, is overseeing everything. Like, you know, that was my title, but I was really overseeing all major functions in there, trying to just basically make everything better for those guys. And it was really a great coveted gig. I was like the guy that everybody called. If you need anything, you need an air condition, you need your office painted, your toilet bowls overflowing. And these things happen constantly. So, you know, I was basically making sure that all of our tradesmen were getting out there all the time. And I just kind of threw my work ethic into that. The same way I had done on patrol, because now I'm like, all right, well, I'm helping my guys now, you know, and right. Yeah, it's not just a community. Um, so I was really it really was such a coveted spot. I had a take home car. I was making overtime. I could make my own hours. Um, you know, everyone liked me. I knew everybody. I knew the upper echelon of the NYPD. I knew everybody. Um, and you know, it's, I, you know, it should have been, uh, I, I, you know, if you would have talked to me two years ago, I would have told you I'm doing 30 years in the NYPD and I'll, you know, so it just, yeah. What's so wild about your story, John, is, um, two things you just said here in the last couple of minutes. The first was they don't want guys like me. I said the exact same thing towards the end of my career, uh, when I retired from Lancaster city. And the other thing you just said was, um, if you would have talked to me two years before, I would have told you I would have been in NYPD for 30 years. If you would have talked to me, you know, two years, three years ago, uh, I would have told you definitely like there were points in my career where I thought I was a lifer because in Lancaster city, you could, you know, I could work there till I was 60 years old. And I, in my mind, I thought there were most of my career. I was like, oh, I'll be here till I'm 60. And, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's just, uh, it's crazy how like completely two different departments, you know, size departments, like what we did completely different, but, um, yeah, just, just, uh, and I think there's so many officers that are feeling those things right now that officers who care about, uh, actually doing the job and the mission of law enforcement um, are feeling that like, they don't, they don't want guys like that anymore. They don't want officers like that anymore. Um, and when I say they, I'm talking generally in your, in your urban departments, uh, where the politics are generally pretty far left and liberal. Uh, they don't, they don't want, I don't know what they want. I think they want social workers. They don't want cops. They don't want guys that are going to get after it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy, man. It's it's it really is. It's a, it's a sad, it's a sad development that's going right, on right across the country. Yeah, but uh, you also touched on the fact of the the relationships you make, the people you get to know, um, and 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 uh, yeah, just that camaraderie. And and offline, you mentioned to me that the you know that the relationships you made over your career 
with community members, victims, peers, supervisors, et cetera, impacted you very greatly and, and shaped you. Can you expound on that at all or even give an example of what you meant by that? I just think like, you know, like I, you know, like I'm not like a smart guy. I'm not like, you know, I'm not a very well educated guy, but like in my community, like, you know, I went from like a punk kid to like somebody that people called for everything, like, you, you know, off duty, on duty, like any issues, anything that was going on. And it wasn't even just police related, you know, you know, I was like, oh, I'm having trouble with my kid. I'm having trouble with this, you know, and like. I'm like, wow, I'm really like a real staple in this community. Like, and, you know, and, and, and that's true for every community that I worked in, you know, I, and again, New York's a verse, diverse environment. It's not as, as ethnic as it was at one time, but when, like when I was a sergeant in Brooklyn, you had a, uh, the, the largest population of Hasidic communities in the world, other than Israel, you had the second largest Chinese population other than it's even bigger than Chinatown in Manhattan, like Chinatown in Brooklyn has taken over and you have every type of every to China. They speak every type of language, Mandarin, Fukunese. Um, You have a Bangladeshi community. You have a Pakistani community. You have a black community. You have a Spanish community. You still have somewhat pockets of an Italian community. Mm -hmm. Um, City council members. um, I'm sorry, not city council members, but um, like the the neighborhood council, like the community Mm -hmm. council. They compromised all of those, like their community leaders. And, you know, those people still like they reach out to me more than my own upper echelon. Like I I received a call. I received a call really not too long ago from like a member of the Chinese community, a high ranking member who's, you know, who's very well funded, very well businessman. And and he basically told me, listen, you come back, I'll fund your whole campaign like this got to stop, you know, and. And, you know, I spoke to my wife about it as much as I want to do it. She wants to be here with the kids. She wants this environment for them. Mm-hmm. So but like those things, like, you know, my guys that I worked with, um, even kids that I interacted with, like, you know, like I was, uh, you know, I always said that, like, what, what do you do? I'm like, I, what am I good at? I'm like, I bully bad guys. That's what I do. But I do. <laughs> but like when I really think about it, I did a lot more than that. I mentored these kids that were just like me. Right. They were, you know, they were, you know, they came from poor families. They're hanging out in the parks. They're getting into trouble. They're listening to idiots in the neighborhood. And when they see and speak to me, they know that I just I'm just like them. Matter of fact, I'm probably worse than them. You know what I mean? And, you know, I dress I dress just like them. I look just like them. I talk just like them. And, you know, I you know, even that I would go to the mall with my wife and like Kids would come up to me. Now, I don't want to say kids. Like, they were grown men. They were my age. You know, at the time, I was probably like 30. They're like 30. Yo, what's up, bro? How you doing? How's everything? You know, we'd talk back and forth. My wife would be like, oh, who's that? I was like, oh, no, I arrested him. You know, like, right. people, like, and, and even till like, today, even, like, I, I went, since I left, you know, it's just, I really, like, the relations, like, we have a service. Like, we really have a debt, all of us, whether you're a cop, you're a, you own a pizzeria, you're a nurse, you're a teacher. You, you have a debt to your community. And, like, I thought that that was the perfect job. And being a cop, I've got to experience everyone and every job in that community. So it really was. It was a blessing. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I still have great friends, like I said, not, and even, even like, even today, my guys that like that, I, that I trained or the guys that trained me, we, 
we're on group text messages all day long. You know what I mean? Like I might not have seen some of these guys for four years, but I spoke to them every day, you know? Um, so I, you know, I, uh, you know, I just think like being a cop, it really is at the end of the day, I'm like, you know what, as much as I never saw it for myself at the end of the day, it really is a calling. It really is. It really is, you know, cause you wouldn't do it. And, you know, even going in, like even going into the department, like I, you know, I, like I said, I was in a million physical confrontations, like growing up, I couldn't even begin to number them. Um, and when I was becoming a cop, I really sat back and I thought, wow, could I do that? This job, this is, this job's impossible. Like when I started to think about, it, I started to think about like, well, what if someone chokes? How the hell do I save someone that chokes? Right. What if, you know, and all of these different things, what do I do when someone's shot? I don't know what to do there. And then I started to think, well, if I can't do it, who can, you know, and and that's what led me to do it. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm all in. Like, yeah. if I'm going to do it, I'm not going to half-ass it. Right. So. Yeah. And and I think, like, you know, talking to you and, and hearing about your career, uh, you know, the way you operated, um, the way you, you did the job, even your, your background, the way you grew up and everything, um, and hearing you talk about, you know, where you were mentally, you know, at, at, towards the end of your career, pretty smoked mentally um, and, and pretty maxed out mentally. Um, all your career kind of climaxes into, I think every officer, especially officers, I, I think every officer, you know, there's, there's that moment where, you know, kind of everything you've been through and everything you've done kind of starts catching up with you a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, as someone who operated the way you did on the job, is there like an incident or incidents that really affected you or, or, or pushed you closer to just that, that, um, that point in your career where you were just maxed out mentally like that affected you greatly that you would be willing to talk about and, and share with the listeners of the Akinasikov's calling? So I'll, uh, I'm going to give you guys one thing and, and it's not something that affected me so much, but it was the response to it and the lack of care that really started to put a really bad taste in my mouth and to really say, what am I doing? Like this whole message is wrong. Like everything that's being told to us is a lie. You know, you, you know, the, the whole like even I watch these funerals now, man, and I'm like, it disgusts me. It disgusts me with these politicians. We'll never forget. They'll forget about you in a split second. They, you know, and it's it's. So I'm, I'm just going to give you a scenario what happened. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a sergeant. Um, you know, I'm, I'm like a senior sergeant now. I'm running the anti-crime team I'm in 6'6". Six, six. I'm doing crime conditions. I'm covering the crime team that night. It's right after Lou and Ramos got killed. Uh, I don't know if I, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the Wen Jen Lu and the Rafael Ramos assassination. So it's a few months after that. We're all on edge. Everybody's on edge. People are scared to go out on patrol. Uh, the mayor does not have our back. The, the, the president at the time does not have our back. Nobody has our back. Like we literally feel like we're out here alone. All, all of our confrontations that were used to that weren't resulting in resisting arrest now are. Um, so that had, had just happened. Um, it's very fresh on the taste of all of our minds. We, uh, I go in, I go into work 
and uh, I go into work and I, and like I always did as a cop, I did it as a sergeant too. I went in an hour early to work out because I always felt it to be very important to get your workout in, right? Because I don't know what the night holds for me and I don't even know if I'm going to eat that night. I don't know when next time I'm going to pee is the minute we turn the radio on, right? Like so, um, so I went in an hour early and the night before um, we had just got a new guy. He was a white shield from a different command. And basically, when I say a white shield, he was a cop. He was now in the detective squad. They moved him to a different precinct. He had an arrest the night prior. I spoke to him a little bit while I was at the desk getting ready to sign out. And seemed like a real great guy. We talked to him. We had like a me and lieutenant. I was hanging out with the midnight platoon commander. We, I was telling him whatever happened throughout the night. I'm signing out. I'm BSing with him and the new guy. I talked to him. New guy walks in into the back into the detective squad. I'm, I'll never forget. I say to the lieutenant, I'm like, yeah, he's a good guy. He's going to do good. He's going to fit in here. Next day co- comes. I go into work an hour early. One of the detective squad guys comes out and he's like, hey, Sarge, uh, I'm now I'm walking up. I don't. He's like, you see the new guy? I'm like, nah, bro, I'm just coming in. You know, I go downstairs. I work out. I go downstairs. I work out. My guys come out. I tell them well, whatever we're going that night on like whatever it was whatever pattern we're working out we all get suited up we're out in plain clothes we all get in our cars we're driving out and i probably get about eight blocks away from the command when i start hearing 1013 1013 address of the precinct so in my head in my head in my head i'm like yeah they're shooting up the precinct right they're shooting up the precinct right so mm-hmm. I'm like, get back there right now. Now, my story is going to go back in time about two days. Okay. Okay. So before that happened, same guys that are on patrol that night had patrol two days prior, right? Two days prior to this incident, there was an immigrant family up on 8th Avenue in Brooklyn, um, man from China. He has his wife and his three kids living in his apartment, he brings his brother over from China to live with him. Man's at work. He comes home. He comes home and he finds his brother covered in blood and his little babies and his wife murdered, um, savagely murdered, right? So for me, I'm a guy that kind of, everything's a movie to me when it happens. You know what I mean? It's not real, kind of doesn't stick with me. There's, you know, images that, yeah, that I'll never forget, but I don't want to say impact me into any debilitating way other than I'll never forget them. Right. Right. So, but I watched the look on some of my guys' faces and I'm like, holy shit. I could tell how deeply, severely impacted these guys are. Right. Um, and there's no, you know, there's nothing for these guys. You know what it is? Answer the next job, get the next job. The radio's going, do this, blah, blah, blah. And I'll never forget the look on their faces, um, leaving there, um, you know, taking some of the stuff from the crime scene and it's still a busy night, man. And listen, I was, I, you know, as much as guys love me, they'll tell you the same thing about me. I'm like, get out there, get that job, blah, 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 blah. I, you know, I'm just as guilty of everything that I, that I'm going to talk about, you know? Um, So that, that incident had happened. Now, fast forward, we're in the car. It's two nights. Same guys are still on patrol. Fast forward. I'm back into that car 
And um, I see a detective in the middle of the street. She's still on the job. Um, and I just see her with a radio in her hand, no gun out, looking at a car. Looking in the middle of the street in the avenue on 16th Avenue. And she's just looking into a car. And I'm like, no 1013. No 1013. Call it off. Don't have anybody else come here. Right? Because I already know. Right. Yeah. I already know. Yeah. I get out of the car. I look at her. She's looking directly at me. She's not looking at the car anymore. I look to the car that she was looking at. And the detective, the white shield from the night before was sitting there with his head blown off. Hmm. Um, now, I couldn't call off the 1013 because probably, even though I called it off, guys were already like, again, we're on edge, man. You know, right. two of us just got assassinated. We're backing each other on everything. And I was always the, you know, we play offense here. We don't play defense. Defense is going to get us killed. We're on, our defense is a strong offense. We're going to smash this. They're, like, we're not going out there scared. If you're scared, go back in the locker room, take your stuff off and go home. I'll sign you 28. I don't, I don't want you out there. You know, um, so I, so like, you know, um, so, you know, so they all pulled up and seeing that again in their face. Hmm. Um, and now, you know, I set up the crime scene cause it's a crime scene and right. I start to run that. And, you know, I like, I'm not on patrol, the patrol sergeants running the radio. So I'm like, you know, I would always, what, you know, like I would always help out. So I was like, dude, just answer the jobs. I'll take care of this. Like, I'm already here. Don't even come here. Like, it's going to be a mess. You know what I mean? Like, I'll let me just handle it. I was first on scene anyway. Like, you know, other than the detective, but you, you need a supervisor, right? Like, right. So I start to set up the crime scene and I got a couple of guys like breaking off to make sure that the reporters aren't there because everyone's listening to the radio in the NYPD, man. There's probably there's there's cars from other precincts there there's reporters there there's members of the community there and my co at the time walks up and he's like these guys got to get out there these guys got to get out there and i'm like i'm like listen they're gonna answer the jobs all the jobs are gonna get answered they're not doing anything else nobody's getting arrested tonight nobody's writing summonses unless we have to if they go to a job and they need to, it's going to happen. I right. said, look at these fucking guys. They look like they just came out of a hut in Vietnam and you're going to send them right back out there. I go, we're going to be dealing with another one in the locker room in 20 minutes. And you're going to, and you're going to sit here and start to, I'm like, I, I was like, I, I was like, you make me sick. I just, and I started to walk away from him and he goes, that's why, that's why I need you, John. Cause you're my rock. And I was like, and I just walked away from him. I was like, and, and just that will, I'll never forget that. Like I'm not, not him. It's the mentality. Like I said, I was probably him in a different situation and just wasn't aware of it. You right. know, it was just the pressure of that radio and those calls and constant, constant. And, and like, I still, man, like I still can't relax, you know, I'm still waiting for that call to come over sometimes, you know? Right. So it's like, it's not that they impacted me. And I, you know, like I said, you'll never forget scenes and there's numerous ones of them. But it was the lack of care of mental health for these guys or lack of like, hey, we're all human, man. Maybe these three incidents, right? Because two of their members just got assassinated. Now another guy, we just watched a whole family. It was like you couldn't make a horror movie worse than that. Like you, 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 you couldn't make a horror movie that would be worse than that. You couldn't. Right. Um, with all the graphics today. And then now a guy that just came here and – like probably one of the best moments of his career just took his own life and 
by the way, happened to be friends with a lot of the guys that were working that night because they knew him from the academy. So it was, I'll, you know, I'll never forget that. I'll never forget to always think about everything that goes on, not only in cops' lives, but in everyone's life. Like, you never know what people dealt with the night before. You know, you never know what they're dealing with. And, like, you know, just always bring a human touch. So, like, that's kind of, you know, that that's something I'll never forget. Like, just, just that. Like, I just think that more should be done. More should be spoken about. There should be more things for the mental health of officers, you know, whether it be stupid things like motivational videos, workouts, just time, some time to decompress. And I really do think that at some point in your career, like I was on the street, like almost 14 years. I think that's a little too long, man. I don't think people should be on the street that long, especially at the rate. Like, I don't know other counties. I only know the rate of NYPD and the rate of those calls and that radio. And if you care and if you're a conscientious person and you actually care, bro, you're going to drive yourself through the wall, you know, and it's just too long. It's too long. Like there has to be a point where even if it's like, all right, you get a break for two years, you rotate out something, you know, like it can't constantly be chasing that radio. It can't. Yeah. And, yeah. and chasing bad guys. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a really powerful story, John. And <clears throat> yeah, just, I mean, I, I, I've been at the, uh, the suicide of a friend of mine who was on the job as well. And so it just brings back a lot. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just, a one of the, the, one of the darkest things in law enforcement, these guys that are just mentally maxed out, um, and, and where, yeah, where is the help for them? What, what is the solution? And I, I think you touched on something that is super important and something that I've talked about is working some sort of sabbatical in for guys who are on the street, um, on patrol, like being able to work some sort of sabbatical or break in for them where they, they're, they're off. Like they're literally mandated. You, you can't work overtime. You, you, you're done. Like you're off the street for a certain amount of time. And I don't know what that looks like or how you even make that happen, but um, I think I think you hit on a, a good point there. I, I appreciate you being open and a little raw there, sharing that story. Um, I think it just helps people understand the pressure of the job uh, for 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 officers. Um, I did, uh, you know, here to kind of close out. Like it's it's just been a really great conversation. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, you know several other things we could talk about, but, you know, you, you, you mentioned, um, you know, in the, you know, in the pre-interview when I sent out a questionnaire that you believe, you know, one of the greatest challenges facing law enforcement right now is that court of public opinion. And I just wondered if you could just speak real quickly to why you think it's so bad right now, if you think it can be improved and, and if so, how, how you think that could happen. I think, I think that the public's very ill-informed. And I think the leadership in in multiple departments, mainly, you know, I'll talk for the NYPD because I just know it so well. The the message that they're bringing out to the public is just it's wrong, man. Like I'm always I'm a bit like I said, I'm a big believer in the truth, even with supervising. I always tell the truth. I don't try to put a political spin on it. I don't care if it's right or wrong or politically correct. Um, And I never say anything with the intention of offending anyone. But if it does then so be it, because it is the truth. 
Um, and I just think people are not aware of what goes on in police work and what and how things happen and how you could defeat crime and what happens when you don't. And they're starting to see the lawlessness now. And everyone's like, hey, what's going on? Right. What's going on is we're not policing. And, you know, there's not enough people out there like the voices like Bill Bratton or whoever else that like Bill Bratton. Now, who's the police commissioner now? It doesn't matter. You could take every police commissioner from the NYPD. The last police commissioner, in my opinion, in the NYPD was Ray Kelly. Other than that, it was Bill de Blasio and now Mayor Adams. Um, these guys are, you know, the, they're the police commissioners, they're appointed, the chiefs are appointed, they will never break rank, they will never not tote the company line. And they're doing not only their own guys a disservice, they're doing the community that they claim that they care to serve with this service. Absolutely. And we need to get to real conversation. And if we do that, you know, if we do that and we could get that into the schools and into the public and into the media and into the social media, I think you'll see a better generation than maybe the one we went into. Um, yeah. But it, we got to get there, you know, yeah. and I think that's what you're doing. So I applaud your work, you know, um, and that's kind of like why I'm, I'm doing it, too. Like, you know, like I'm sure there's not a lot of money in this for you. Like, you know, you just spent <laughs> three hours of your night with me, like, you know, but like that's that's what it, it needs to happen, man. And the media is right. not doing it and the leadership's not doing it. So it's up to us as, as people yeah. and individuals and adults now in our time to do it. Yeah. And I do think you see more of like kind of like a grassroots effort from officers starting to stand up and and push back a little more than before um you know a lot more podcasts are out there uh you know active on social media that sort of thing just saying like hey maybe law enforcement has done a poor job educating the public about what we do and why we do it i think i think we can take i think law enforcement should take that on a little bit hey maybe we haven't done a good job educating people about you know, what law enforcement is, what the mission is. I think leadership has been terrible um, generally and in law enforcement. I mean, there, there are some excellent leaders out there, but leadership that is afraid to set expectations, lay out reality of what the mission is. I think there's just a lack of what is the mission of law enforcement. And that's something, you know, I try to push on this podcast and, and uh, you know, talking to, to guys such as yourself is just so important for just getting that that word out there and and helping people better understand, you know what what law enforcement should be about, um, and what they should be doing, and and why why like uh, the men and women that do it uh, should be um, listened to when it comes to what should be done. We're listening to the politicians. We're listening to a bunch of people that have never done the job, don't understand it, don't don't know what it's like to go toe to toe with a criminal in the middle of the street at two in the morning, don't understand what these men and women on patrol uh, are doing day in and day out, night in and night out. And, and like, that's who we're listening to about the job and it's just wrong. And so, you know, that's why I appreciate guys like you coming on and talking about it and, and expressing, you know, your experience uh, with it and, and what, what should be uh, getting done. And you kind of touched on it uh, that you're, you know, you're working on something, you're launching your own podcast, uh, which, which I think is awesome. You know, I think anyone who listens to this episode can tell that you are a passionate guy. You have a lot to say, a lot of good to say. Um, can you talk about 
the name of that podcast, its mission, uh, what it's about, when it's going to be coming out, like uh, where we can listen to it, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I'm hoping to release in June. It's going to be on Apple, Spotify, YouTube. It's going to be New York's finest, retired and unfiltered. And basically, it's just going to be I'm going to be bringing on a lot of guests, but main, but centered around bringing on retired NYPD guys like myself, just to highlight who we are, man. Most of us are poor kids from immigrant families that grew up in our community. We're not outside of the community. We're kids that were gotten stopped by the police, just like you. You know, we have families that, that were arrested and family who were EDPs and family who were drug addicts, just like you. And I just want to kind of humanize us more. Uh, you know, I am going to have guys from different departments on. I'd love to have you on as well. Speak about your career. Um, and just, you know, like that's that's really it. You could you could find me at uh, at John D. McCarry on Twitter and you know my podcast is also on Twitter at New York Finest Unfiltered um, and that, you know okay. that's it man and I, just to just to kind of stay in contact I, I, I gotta be honest I left man and I, I I not that I regret my decision but in a way I feel like I don't know I feel like I could have stayed and fighted but it was just going to end up in me being terminated. And I right. just, I, but I still feel like I could have did more, but I don't know what, yeah. you know, so maybe this is it, you know? Yeah. I, you know, you're, you're here. Um, you're doing what you're doing. Uh, I don't believe in accidents and, uh, I think, I think you're, you're doing some good work and I appreciate it. And, uh, is there, I, I came across, um, I believe a website for the podcast. Do you, do you have that website handy? You could share. Oh, it sure. It's uh, it's uh, www.newyorkfinestunfiltered.com. Nyfinestunfiltered.com. Awesome. Um, great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that podcast. Uh, looking forward to hearing a lot more from you. And uh, as I do with with all my guests, I, I close out with giving them a chance for the last word. Uh, your last word, John, can be whatever you like it to be. Um, but the floor is yours. Last word from John, retired Lieutenant John McCary right now. Yeah, I just want to, you know, I just want to thank all the guys that are out there still doing it. All the guys that, you know, are still biting their lips, still hanging on. You guys are probably a little bit younger than me. Some of you are a little bit older than me. And, you know, I'm grateful for the work you did. You know, when I see my kids going to school and they're protected and I feel comfortable with letting, you know, not letting, but, you know, I feel comfortable that my wife is out going for a jog. It's because of the work that you guys do. And I just appreciate you guys, man. And, uh, you know, keep up the great work and be safe out there. But always remember, the most important thing is to put your head on the pillow at night. You got to be able to live with whatever decision you make. I did that my whole career. I not only did I do that, I any job or rest I made, I treated that person like they were my own family. And that doesn't mean that I was not at times violent or I was not ready to bring it to an even worse level um, because there's just some scenarios, you know, people dictate the scenarios that we put them in. And just if you go in there, what, what you would expect a police officer to do in that moment, you'll never go wrong. It never steered me wrong. Um, and, and, you know, I just, that's just my only advice for the young guys out there. And uh, I appreciate you having me on, brother. And uh, it was a great talk on you. Thanks so much, John. Uh, really appreciate it. I know many of us are very tired, and I mean very tired, about hearing 
all this stuff about COVID, but these mandates have and continue to negatively impact many people, and that includes officers. John brought some light to the insanity of what was and continues to be done in New York. He, along with other officers, served that city and were absolutely crapped on at the end. You heard the heart and passion he put into the job, and I don't know how anyone can listen to his story and think that what he was being forced to do made sense. How an officer who worked through the pandemic, who contracted COVID, who actually donated his blood to help others get through the pandemic, who still has the antibodies in his system, was denied exemption and then forced to either get the vaccine or do as he did and retire early. Um, That's crazy. And if you were touched by John's story, show your support by following his podcast, which comes out really soon. The website for that podcast is www.thefinestunfiltered.com. And I'll also put a link uh, for that website into the episode uh, comments for this episode. Uh, And he can also be followed on Twitter at John D. McCary. All right, it's time for So Woke, It's Broke. The information and quotes contained in this segment come from articles in lawofficer.com, itimes.com, mjbrandinsights.com, and newtribune.com. The So Woke, It's Broke winner this episode is Washington State House Bill 1210, which goes into effect in June of this year. The point of the bill? To change the word marijuana to cannabis in the entire state code of Washington because the word marijuana is racist. State Representative Melody Morgan is the primary sponsor on this bill, but she was joined by 13 other reps uh, to make sure this important bill passes. I'm not going to use this segment to get into my views on legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana, but you can check out Season 1, Episode 21 for my views on that. Uh, I I only want to draw attention to the fact that 14 Washington state representatives who who combined make at least, at least $780,000 per year decided this would be a good use of their time and resources. During testimony in 2021, Representative Morgan said the term, quote, the term marijuana itself is pejorative and racist, end quote. She discussed how the word originates from Spanish and that as recreational marijuana became more popular, uh, it was, quote, negatively associated with Mexican immigrants, end quote, and that it was used to, quote, lock up black and brown people, end quote. Listen, marijuana is a controlled substance. It is still considered illegal federally. In many states, it's still illegal, including in PA, where it can only be used in medicinal ways. This is why the majority of marijuana dispensaries across the country whether medical or not, operate a cash business because it is illegal federally. Since financial institutions, credit, and debit transactions are regulated federally, most dispensaries just deal in cash. In many parts of the U.S., you can still be locked up when you're using it, regardless of your color. Now, if you use marijuana in a high crime area with a heavier police presence, are you more likely to get stopped and checked? Maybe. I don't have the stats to support that or or not support that. But the bottom line remains, if you are not using marijuana legally, you won't get stopped, you won't be charged, you won't be convicted. It's this magical truth, once again, that I want to throw out there called personal accountability. If you're not using it illegally, you can't be arrested for it. 
In Washington, uh, Joy Hollingsworth of the Hollingsworth Cannabis Company says that for people of color in the industry, the word marijuana comes with a burden. She said, quote, it had been talked about for a long time in our community about how the word demonizes the cannabis plant, she said. What does that even mean? So the plant is being demonized, but how does demonizing a plant have anything to do with racism? Can you imagine being an officer in Washington right now? Let's say you've served in that state for the last 20 years. You've used the word marijuana in reports, citation, criminal charges, and now all of a sudden, the word is deemed racist, and you, by association, should you accidentally use it in the course of your duties, are now using racist language. Insanity. Insanity. Joy Hollingsworth went on to say, quote, We have a lot of people, especially in the black community, that went to prison over cannabis for years. They were locked up, separated from their nuclear family, which is huge. Uh, she added that it, quote, triggers people of color and said, quote, It's really painful for people to hear that word and it triggers them. I, I, I don't even know what to say. Again, if you're not using it illegally, you don't get locked up. It's, it's, it's a simple concept. The idea of personal responsibility has comp been completely lost uh, in this country. Um, the main sponsors and spokeswoman for the bill uh, is this representative Melanie, Melanie Morgan, which I mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, she's of the 29th Legislative District. Uh, what's included in this district? Uh, most of Tacoma, which is in Pierce County. In fact, Pierce County appears to make up the majority of Representative Morgan's area. Guess what's going up in Pierce County this year? Yep, you guessed it, the crime rate. The crime rate's going up. As of May 2nd, homicide rates in uh, Pierce County are more than double what they were last, uh, at that time last year. Robbery, arson, kidnapping, and theft of motor vehicle are also up. Representative Morgan has been a state rep since 2019. She has been a primary sponsor on 24 other bills. Did any of these bills appear to address the crime in her area? Not a one that I could find. She did sponsor bills on equity within the cannabis industry, equity in the farming industry, determining the Washington State dinosaur, which I thought was really important, adding a definition to the Discrimination Human Rights Commission chapter of the Washington Code, which addresses hair discrimination. Yes, you heard that right. A bill addressing hair discrimination. Also of note uh, is that she is the secondary sponsor to House Bill 1054, which among other things, completely bans chokeholds and neck restraints. Bans them completely, even in deadly force situations. So it sounds really great, but it's not great at all for an officer who is literally fighting for his life and needs that option to be able to go home to his family. That same bill also creates unbearable red tape to get through to even have a canine officer unit on your department. Uh, it greatly reduces the ability of officers to use discretion to use tear gas, creating multiple legal barriers for officers to have to overcome under stress and under attack before they are able to use it. And it puts greater restrictions on the vehicle pursuits. Who does that serve? Does that serve the communities of Washington? No, it serves criminals. It helps criminals. That's what that bill helps. Uh, and that's who that bill serves. Now, listen, I didn't do an exhaustive review of all of Representative Morgan's sponsored bills. So I'm sure she's put forth some good ideas and changes in her time as a state rep since 2019. But looking down over the list of bills she has her name on, it's clear that she is pushing a far left woke agenda. And so it is with House Bill 1210. 
which defines a word as racist and changes the entire Washington state code. House Bill 1210 and Representative Morgan are this episode's So Woke, It's Broke winner. Speaking of So Woke, It's Broke, I have to admit that over the past month or so, I've really been asking myself why I'm doing this segment. To be honest, quite often I question why I even do this podcast. What are the motives behind it? What is my heart behind it? In the last Low Expectations uh, episode that I had with Gary, we talked about the verse in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 to the beginning of verse 10, and it says, The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. And so pretty much when I do anything, I continually question my motives, because I know that my heart is sick and deceitful above all else. That's what that verse says. I can't trust my own emotions or feelings. I must be grounded in something else and someone else, and that's where and when my faith in God and my salvation by grace uh, through faith in Christ must be relied on. So yeah, why do I do So Woke It's Broke? Or why do I even do this podcast? I know that within the answers to those questions lie some wrong motives, and even sinful motives at times. But I also know this, we have been, in, we have been given a gift in this country, and we need to steward it. James 1, 16 and 17 says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Freedom is a good thing. It's a gift from God. The freedom we experience in the USA is not perfect. It's not without blemish. It hasn't been without blemish. But it is good. For many, our country is a beacon of hope. People from other countries who are not free desire to come here. Our freedom is a gift, and because it's a gift, we can say in light of James 1.17 that it's from God himself. And every good gift needs to be stewarded in a good way. 1 Peter 4.8-11 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We steward the gifts of God to bring glory to him through Jesus Christ. So even in my flawed motives, I seek to love my neighbor by shedding light on darkness and pointing people toward the hope, the antidote, Jesus. I seek to love my neighbor by advocating for what is right in God's eyes, not driven by my emotions or feelings, but by what he says. Even if you don't share my faith or believe in God, you can't deny that the Bible is a book of ordered living. It lays out tenets, disciplines, character traits that will serve you well. But our culture is fleeing from the righteousness of God and seeking to do the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. And when I say fleeing, I mean fleeing, going in the absolute opposite direction. We should not be surprised by this, but we should not fold. This is why I so adamantly oppose, uh, for instance, the social justice movement, because it provides no hope. It's a Trojan horse. It's presented as love and care and advocacy, but it's filled with retribution and penance. 
based on identifying and lifting people up by victim status, not as image bearers of God. The Bible clearly teaches a standard of righteousness that we as believers should fight toward in spite of our sin, and yet the world right now is pushing a standard of sin. It's pushing this idea that we should appease, praise, agree with sinfulness. Again, we should not be surprised by this, but we should not fold. We should fight because we live in a country where stewardship means we can fight to keep those freedoms for the benefit of all. Being patriotic is not wrong. Having love of country is not wrong. It is not the most important thing, and, it, and, and if my patriotism and my love of country is higher than or more important than my love of God, well, then it's an idol in my heart and it's sin. But right now we have the gift of freedom in this country. We've been given the gift of free speech and the right to push back against oversteps of the government. And let me be clear, these rights may have been written by the hands of men many years ago, but those men in that moment were put into authority by God. That's Romans 13 right there. These rights and freedoms are ordained by God. As I said earlier, these are gifts from God. And as a citizen who falls under the authority of our government, as citizens who have God-given rights that we must steward, a gift that we are obligated to steward. Right now, we have the ability to push back against evilness and godlessness in our culture. And I believe we must. I believe we're commanded to. For in Romans 13, when we are called to submit to our government, our government in the United States of America right now is considered by some to be a constitutional republic or a democratic republic, however you want to define it, that calls for a government by the people and for the people as Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address many years ago. And to be clear, this means that all people are free to worship as they desire and who they desire. As a Christian, my mandate is to go and tell people the gospel and hope that they confess and pray that they confess and believe in the one true God. I have the freedom to do that as an American. Many people in other parts of the world don't have that right, don't have that freedom. Right now, we have that freedom. And we must use it to do right. It may be that someday in this country, we will cease to be free. That God may see fit to allow this country to abolish freedom, to abolish the Constitution, to abolish the rights of certain citizens. I pray not, but it's possible. And if those rights are taken, and if that freedom is taken and our country enters into tyrannical rule, it may be so that I will need to re-examine how I as a Christian then fall under the authority of the government that is like that. For sure, under a government like that, a stand to obey God rather than men, exampled to us by Peter and other apostles in Acts 5, 27 and 29, may cost me much more, much, much more. I may lose the right to have a podcast such as this. I may lose the right to speak freely without consequence. And so I choose to voice it now when I can without retribution in hopes that our freedom continues, in hopes that I can continue without retribution to share the gospel and share my faith and share truth. I choose to hopefully, in a respectful manner, push back and stand up and fight for the sake of my children. I am patriotic. I do care about this country. I hope and pray that my love of country, my love of freedom, my love of what we have does not become an idol, does not become more important than God. I pray that I steward the gift well, that I don't worship the gift, but that I worship the gift giver. 
And so I do this podcast knowing that my sin is great. I do this podcast knowing that my heart is sick and deceitful above all else. But I also do this podcast knowing that while my sin is great, my Savior is greater. I do this podcast knowing that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ does not mean sin ends in my life. Salvation in Jesus Christ has not stopped my sin. It has not ended my sin. It has not finished my sin, but it has forgiven my sin. For he became sin on my behalf. That's the truth. Jesus became sin on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus who was sinless became sin on my behalf, on your behalf, so that I, so that you can become the righteousness of God. Recently I heard a sermon by R.C. Sproul where he shared hearing about this mental picture of our sin once we are saved. He described our sin as a chicken and that once we receive the gift of salvation, our sin or that chicken has its head cut off. But if you know what happens when a chicken has its head cut off, well, it runs around like a chicken with its head cut off. The chicken is dead. The sin is dead. But it doesn't know it. It's running around. Blood is going everywhere and it's making a mess, but it's dead. Man, what a great mental picture for sin in our lives as believers. Jesus Christ died for that sin. That sin is dead. That sin is forgiven. We are righteous before God. We are justified. I'm justified. It is just if I'd never sinned, but I'm in the process of being sanctified. And in my life, that sin is flopping around like a chicken with its head cut off. And it makes a mess sometimes. But despite the mess, I am righteous. Romans 5, 1-2 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, or through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. How do we receive the righteousness of God? Not through anything we do, but through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Confess, believe, be saved. That is the message of hope in Romans 10.9, and it is a gift to the believer. So the bottom line is that in imperfect ways, I will continue to do this podcast. And the So Woke It's Broke segment. In imperfect ways, I will shed light on evilness. For a culture is intent on being wise in their own eyes, and in doing so, they are becoming absolute fools. There is confusion in this world, and there is clarity in the word of God. With God's grace, I will continue to kick up the dust in pursuit on behalf of law enforcement, but more importantly, on behalf of the truth of God. Every week, I try to kick up the dust in pursuit on this podcast. I kick it up on behalf of law enforcement. I kick it up on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, you can kick up the dust in pursuit of him. And maybe that starts with you reaching out to me and asking more questions. Or maybe it just means that you make the decision to follow him right now. If you do know him, kick up the dust in pursuit wherever you find yourself. Whatever career you find yourself in. Wherever you you find yourself. Wherever you are. Whatever you do. Kick up the dust in pursuit of him if you know him. And finally, if you're in law enforcement, kick up the dust in pursuit of the evildoer, in pursuit of that criminal. For in doing so, you will praise the one that does good. <laughs>